Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? What is up? Welcome to this week's podcast. This is a super fun one. I hope you guys are all living so radically. Super exciting news. My book is available for pre-order now. Please support me if you like my work. Think about pre-ordering the book. You can go to thecarnivorecodebook.com. There's a link to my publisher, which is Indigo River, and you can support me with a pre-order. Anyone that pre-orders as a huge thank you will be invited to an exclusive Q&A with me in December. It'll be live, and you guys can ask me whatever questions you want. And you can find that landing page also at my website, which is Carnivore MD. This was a really fun conversation with Chris Master John. It's the second. So if you missed the first part, you might want to go back and listen to that one. As you may all know, Chris is an advocate of kind of a Western A price style diet, an omnivorous style diet. And I thought, who better to talk about the science, the potential pros and cons of an entirely animal-based diet than Chris. I'm sure there will be some other ones in the future. I'm hoping to have a conversation with Chris Kresser as well. Chris's perspective is that there may be some nutrients missing from a carnivore diet. We talked a lot about that one in the first episode. And my feeling is that there are really no nutrients missing from a carnivore diet if we get enough nose to tail nourishment. I'll have a podcast coming out soon with James Antonio where we go further into the vitamin C issue. I think both Chris and James would disagree with me on whether there's enough vitamin C on a carnivore diet. But as you will hear in my first part conversation with Chris and my future conversation with James, I do not think there's convincing evidence that we need lots of vitamin C and the roles. I think of vitamin C are primarily in the generation of collagen and it does have some antioxidant role in the recycling of glutathione and vitamin E, but I think that the doses that are needed for that have been widely overly inflated. So that's just my perspective from what I've seen in the science. I think there's room for debate here and the discussion as always is quite interesting and revealing. In this episode, we get deep into ketosis. As many of you will know, a carnivore diet is often ketogenic, though it can be different degrees of ketosis based on our macros. I've often favored moderate protein, high fat. Some people eat a carnivore diet that's higher protein that'll have lower amounts of ketones. I think As Chris and I talk about, there are many interpretations to what a carnivore diet is, and one could even technically eat a carnivore diet that included honey and was not ketogenic at all. But my main takeaway with a carnivore diet is this. When we acknowledge that plants have toxins, that is a radical concept. So often in our society, people just accept that plants are beneficial for us invariably, and they ignore all of these toxins. So I think when we imagine where are the toxins, the fact that plants can have toxins, and we think about a spectrum of plant toxicity, which I detail in my book, and we think where do we get nutrients, animal foods, we're pretty much 85% of the way to a carnivore diet anyway. If we're thinking about the lowest toxicity plants and getting the most nutrients, nose to tail from animals, then we're almost to a carnivore diet, and that's why it's such an intriguing concept to me. Chris and I also talk a lot about the potential pros and cons of ketosis. Chris was worried about cortisol. Chris was also worried about sex hormones. And as you'll hear in this podcast, I think there was a lot of evidence to the contrary for that, that the majority of these concerns people have about a ketogenic diet are when they are myopically focused on the beginning part of a, of a ketogenic diet rather than a full 
keto adaptation period. In the beginning, the pH does shift. In the beginning, cortisol does bump a little bit. But what we've seen from multiple studies that we talk about in this podcast is that within two to three weeks, all of these things appear to have gone back to baseline. And there's really no good evidence that cortisol is elevated, that the autonomic nervous system is elevated. Certainly there's no evidence of epinephrine activation or elevation or the pH changes in any meaningful way on a long-term ketogenic diet that is in keto adaptation. We talk about the Inuit, we talk about CPT1A, and we also talk about athletic performance. And as I bring up in this podcast, there's really good evidence that glycogen stores are equivalent between ketogenic and carbohydrate adapted athletes after a period of ketogenic adaptation. Perhaps the most interesting thing that came out of this conversation for me was the mention of the amylase gene duplication. I hadn't thought about this a whole lot until Chris brought it up, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that as you'll hear me explain in this podcast, the fact that only Homo sapiens and not Neanderthals or Denisovans have an amylase gene duplication suggests that we have not been eating significant amounts of tubers for the vast majority of our time as humans and our ancestors, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Homo heidelbergensis, who are believed to have evolved into Denisovans and Neanderthals before the Homo sapien group left Africa 70 to 80,000 years ago. So you'll hear us talk about it in this podcast. So enjoy this podcast, you guys. This is a two and a half hour epic I love this kind of stuff. I appreciate Chris so much. I appreciate the way that he forces me to learn about stuff. And I'm so happy to have had him in this conversation. And my sponsors continue to include the amazing people, White Oak Pastures, 150 years, grass-fed, grass-finished beef, lamb, turkey, Iberian pigs, Iberian fat is amazing. They have chickens and ducks. The ducks are out of this world. They have pastured eggs. This is an amazing place. We have White Oak Chella happening the 14th and 15th of December. If you guys want to come and check it out, you can go to whiteoakpastures.com for all the info about them. And as always, you can use my code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order. If you're not familiar with them, you will not be disappointed. These guys are leading the way in regenerative agriculture and rotational grazing. They are carbon negative. This is the future of farming in our country. You guys, these guys are exemplary. You can use the code carnivore 15 for 15% off rotating items that are on special every month. You can find out what those are. If you go to info.whiteoakpastures.com front slash carnivore MD, which is my landing page at white Oak, where all of sort of the special stuff for my listeners are featured exclusively. I appreciate these guys. Please support them. You are doing a good thing for everyone. These are good people. And I think that when we band together as a tribe and we support good people, Everyone benefits, and this is food that will nourish us and our families in, I believe, foundational ways. Nose to tail is the answer. Speaking of a tribe and people that we care about, I really appreciate the folks at Ancestral Supplements. Speaking about nourishing our families, speaking about nose to tail, Ancestral Supplements is continuing to just be the place to get nose to tail, grass-fed, grass-finished, beautifully sourced from New Zealand, desiccated, I should say, specifically freeze-dried. This is the most delicate way to process the organs that preserves the majority of the nutrients. This is the best way to do it. And they are sourcing these from New Zealand in gelatin capsules, so it's convenient. Not everybody wants to eat liver. Not everybody wants to eat brain. And so this is the way to do it. I love them when I can't source the organs or when I'm traveling. You can use the code SALADINOMD at their Shopify site, and you will get 10% off. Do not be fooled by imitators. I think that as people realize how important 
this nose to tail nourishment is. There are supplements coming out now that are not sourced from New Zealand, but might actually claim that they are. If you are thinking about using glandulars, whether it's liver, brain, heart, whatever, demand the certificate of analysis from the company. Ancestral Supplements provides this. They are truly New Zealand-based. There are so few companies doing New Zealand-based. If you look at this, a lot of stuff is from Argentina and South America, and that is much, much lower quality, much lower quality. So do not be fooled by imitators. These guys are the real deal, and they are the best people that I have ever met in this space. They are some of the best people in my life in general, and I appreciate them deeply as people. They are always working to help us remember how to live ancestrally, and they are putting back in what the modern world has left out. So check them out at ancestralsupplements.com. You can use my code. Please support them if you are looking to get more organs in our life, which we should all be. Okay, you guys, that is it. On to the podcast. Let me know what you think about this one. Listen after the podcast for what is going on with me. Paul Saladino, doctor, welcome back to the, uh, actually, I was on your show. Welcome to my show. It's, it's good, good to, to be you on again. your show. It's yeah. good to be on your show, Chris. It's good so, to be here. So I think uh, we should continue this, this uh, friendly carnivore debate. I think I, the way my mind works is to like start from the very basic level and build up on it or go down into detail. I think we should start at like, what is a carnivore diet? So I could see someone saying, you know, a carnivore diet is a meat heavy diet. A carnivore diet is a meat only diet. Um, in your in your view, what, what what does the word carnivore, and when we talk about a carnivore diet, what exactly do we mean by that? It's a great question, man. It's been defined a lot of different ways over the course of history. There are some people who say a carnivore is an animal or a, an animal of any sort that eats a large amount, and that number is kind of arbitrary. More than 75% of their you know, foods is animals. Colloquially, I think the, the carnivore diet is defined as people who eat the vast majority of their diet is animal foods. And I think technically without, I mean, it's not something that we're really dogmatic about, but it's basically excluding all plants from the diet. Though in my book, I give, you know, space for this thing called a carnivore-ish diet. And, <laughs> you know, like, you know, mostly animal foods with a few plant foods, perhaps with attention to a spectrum of plant toxicity and individual sort of sensitivities to various plants. I think that perhaps... One of the more interesting parts of thinking about a carnivore diet for me is that it challenges the notion. I don't think you hold this notion, but I think this notion is held within functional medicine circles. It challenges the notion that plants are invariably good for humans and starts to introduce this underlying idea that plants may have variable levels of toxicity on an individual basis and individual plants may be more toxic than others based on the things that they harbor within them. I think that most people will not find the concept that plants have toxins to be too, you know, strange, though once we dig down into the details and trying to find which things are toxins and which things not, there's definitely some disagreement about that. But I think most people would, you know, if they've heard of lectins or oxalates or, you know, other frank neurotoxins in plants, they'll say, oh yeah, plants have toxins. I go a little further in some of my work and suggest, you know, call into question a lot of the plant nutrients as perhaps toxic, and that's where it gets kind of granular. But at a, at a high level, a carnivore diet is just a, a fully animal-based diet. And some people have said whole foods animal-based. And I like that. You know, it's just like, hey. In, in, it's the, it's, the, it's the, uh, the answer to whole foods plant-based. The whole foods plant-based, right? Uh, and, you know, I think that I don't advocate for a carnivore diet that's just me. Uh, our first conversation is perhaps relevant at this point to bring up our our first podcast was kind of a drill down into the nutrients that we need as humans and where they are 
in plants versus animals. And I think that one of the interesting things that I learned as I dug more into that was that you can get a lot of nutrients from animals nose to tail. And that was one of the things that I think came out of our first meeting. And you can let me know if you agree with that. But that if you, if you, you know, when we're talking about a ketogenic diet, which we're going to talk about today, you know, people like Volek and Finney have said a well-constructed ketogenic diet, quote unquote. And so I think you could adapt that to a carnivore diet and say, hey, there's a, a way to do a well-constructed carnivore diet with attention to certain micronutrients rather than just eating a ribeye at every meal. These are things like iodine or calcium or boron or biotin or riboflavin or folate, which may not always be adequate for humans in a, in a steak, you know? So, right. I, this um, this is sort of like the phrase that the dietitians. So the American Dietetic Association wrote a position paper on vegan diets uh, a few years ago, actually like a decade ago, where they talked about well planned vegan diets. I think that's kind of what you're getting at with the nose to tail thing. Is a a well planned or well formulated carnivore diet is you know, and I think we would you and I agree on I would say eighty to ninety percent that you can mostly prevent frank overt nutrient deficiencies by eating nose to tail animal product. I would, I'm, I, and we talked about this in detail in part one, so we don't need to completely go over it. But I mean, I, I basically feel that I'm skeptical that you can get optimal amounts of everything, even on a well formulated carnivore diet. But then again, what is optimal for each person is, is different. And so could very well be that some people get what's optimal on a carnivore diet. But back, back to the definition. Well, we, let's pause there yeah. for a moment. And then sure. we bring up questions around like, how do we measure optimal, right? And, yeah. you know, for saying optimal, we have to have some sort of a metric. I think that the main point of contention for most people and what came out of the first discussion was vitamin C, which we don't have to really recapitulate here and now. No, but that and, would be a great example. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the one that stands out for me. I didn't take away... I mean, you can let me know if there were other nutrients you felt like might not be optimal on a well-constructed or intentional carnivore diet other than vitamin C. But I mean, you know, vitamin C is a whole rabbit hole that we can go down or I, we, we talked about in the first podcast. But if, in the instance of vitamin C, it's like, how do we measure that? How do we really know what's optimal? And I think that any discussions of optimal have to have a metric, right? And in the case of vitamin C, we talked about, do you measure 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine? Do you measure with the peroxides? Do you have to do something really esoteric, like measure oxidized to reduce glutathione? How do you know what optimal is? It's quite an interesting discussion because um, the carnivore diet certainly provides enough vitamin C to prevent scurvy, but then the subsequent question becomes... A well-formulated one, yeah. Yes, yeah. Do we need more than that? So those are really interesting questions. Yeah. Um, so coming back to this definition, I mean, you don't eat 25% of your diet as, as plant foods, right? No. And, and do, you, do you eat any plants? No. Okay. So, I mean, if someone says to you, if you're sitting down at the, uh, at, uh, what kind of, I don't know what kind of drink you'd have on a carnivore diet. Okay. You're sitting down at the steak bar, right? With some, some guy who says. Topo Chico. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There we go. Mineral water. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, sharing a mineral water. And uh, someone says, yeah, I'm carnivore. I eat 90% of my diet, uh, animal products. I mean, do you, do you go a uh, cool man or do you go, nah, you're carnivore-ish, I'm carnivore? No, no, I'm not going to be, no, no. I, I, like, I don't, no. I don't literally mean next to that guy. Like, I know you're a polite guy, but like, 
in your in your sort of intellectual definition, is a ninety percent animal diet a carnivore diet or a carnivore ish diet? I don't know that it really matters to tell you the truth. Okay. I would, I, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I would so say, I, I think I think it's good. I, I think probably a ninety percent carnivore diet is carnivore ish. You know, okay. if we're if we're getting right down to it, it's probably carnivore ish. And just for the sake of simplicity, but I don't think that's not pejorative in any way. Because, no, 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 no. Because I, I think I mean, that because I think that people can. One of the things that I I think that we all rebel against is these, this dogma. And I mean, this is actually kind of interesting because without being too, you know, judgmental, this is what happens in plant-based circles or vegan circles is people will say like, you weren't really a vegan, you know, because you ate, you know, and that's not what I do or people tend to do within carnivore circles. It's like, it's not like we're going to say to somebody, you're not really a carnivore. I think, it, like I said, it's more of this perspective where do we get most of the nutrients or where do we get the most nutrients? Where do we get nutrients to be optimal humans? Do plants yeah. have toxicities? Let's think about that. Okay. And for there's some people some, is but, eating but no a, plants good. But there's a, but there's a pejorative way to define something and a, and a, and a gentle intellectual way of doing it. Sure. I I'm big on definitions because I think that semantics are super important and how we talk about things affect, greatly impacts how we think about them. And you brought up, what vegans do, like, yes, there's vegans who might be dismissive of other vegans because they have the occasional animal product. But I actually, I see the opposite problem. I see, for example, uh, T. Colin Campbell says in the China study that the ideal thing would be to restrict your animal products to no more than 2% of your diet. And he says 2% of your diet is so inconsequential that um, you might as well just eat 100% plant foods. Then Joel Furman does something more moderate in Eat to Live. He says that most people can live within what he calls a 10% junk food diet. All animal foods fit into his 10% allotment of junk food. And he says about 10% of people need more animal foods than that because they have digestive problems. Now, putting aside their actual claims, what I want to point out is what they're doing with the language there is they are dismissing what could be extreme importance of minor components of the diet. So for example, in T. Colin Campbell's 2% of the diet plant food, um, you could have two oysters and a clam for breakfast every single day on Campbell's 2% of your diet. As and animals. Fit, and Yeah, and fit within the 2% of your diet as animals. And that could prevent a zinc deficiency. That could prevent a B12 deficiency. That could... The 2% of your diet, if you're selecting the most nutrient, like you could sit down and eat four grams of liver every day. And like you could, or two grams of liver, one clam, one oyster for breakfast every two single ounces day. or two grams? No, two grams. Two, like two grams of liver, Chris? Yeah, no, yeah, but uh, listen, that's my point. If you eat two grams of, of liver, a uh, clam, and an oyster every day, you are, you are doing a great deal to prevent frank deficiencies sure. of nutrients that are primarily found in animal products because you've used that 2% very widely. Joel Furman's 10%. You know how many nutrients you can fit into your diet by eating 10% of your diet as the most nutrient-dense animal products? Like if you take the, 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 all the organ meats and shellfish and whatever else that you, that you eat and you make that 10% of the diet, you have completely turned around the nutrition around zinc, around B12, around a lot of nutrients that are very important to get from animal products. So when I look at that, I say, I'm not going to call someone vegan if they're eating a 98% plant 
based diet, and then they're deliberately sitting down <laughs> to get 2% of their diet as the most nutrient dense animal foods. Why? Because it's not about the relative bulk, it's about the importance of that thing in the diet. In other words, if the contribution of your animal products to your mostly vegan diet is the difference between re- irreversible neurological degeneration, having it and not, then that 2% was so profoundly important that you have to call that diet not vegan, right? So there's, I think there's a difference between a carnivore who only cares about 100% um, animal foods but occasionally cheats for the hell of it versus, you know, if you, if, if you sat down and you made a diet that was 90% meat, but then you said, okay, the most, nu- the most nutrient-dense plant foods that are rich in vitamin C and folate and magnesium and manganese, I'm going to deliberately include 10% of my diet to get, get all, cover all those bases, then I think, okay, carnivore-ish is an okay term, but to call that carnivore, I think, would be misleading because the plant foods are so important in changing what the nutrition is. So the way that I would think about a fair term for carnivore would be if if everything that is important to your nutrition is coming from your animal foods and you're only eating animal foods except when you occasionally eat something that you don't care about, that wasn't important in any way to your health, then that's a carnivore diet that you sometimes cheat on. Whereas a 90% animal diet and 10% really important plant products that are making a really important nutritional contribution to that diet, that's a meat-heavy diet, not a carnivore diet. That's how I would see it. No, I think that's totally, I think that's totally reasonable. And those discussions are super fascinating. And we kind of went through that in the first talk because, you know, as we're thinking about this and we're trying to see if the concept of an entirely animal-based diet is even viable, we think, well, and that's, again, that's the first podcast or parts of it. Is there anything we're really missing on that type of diet? That's a fascinating question. So going forward from there, I, I think one of the things we should kind of uh, try to reconstruct here is, um, are we viewing a carnivore diet as a return to the ancestral diet, or are we viewing a carnivore diet as an idea that's developed in the last couple decades, or you know, correct me on the timing if you want to trace the history better than, than I can, um, but a, a new idea as a, um, as a health hack or a medical treatment for diseases. So in other words, is this, um, is this a, a, newly, a new dietary approach based on trying to achieve a certain effect? Or is it, I guess it, they're not mutually exclusive, but or is, it, is this the way we've always eaten until we mess things up and we're going back to that? How, what, what, which, which of those do you place more emphasis on? I think they're both important, Chris, and it's, it's impossible to really know how we ate. And we'll talk about some studies that might give us some perspective, but as we talked about before the podcast, neither of us is paleoanthropologists. So, right. and, you know, I think there's an interesting hypothesis here. And ancestrally, the question is, if our ancestors could access big fatty animals and eat them in their entirety, did they eat plants? Did they have a need for plants? Or and this is something that I've kind of asked in my books and my writings, and it's just a hypothesis that I've suggested. Like, is it possible that given a, an abundant supply of delicious woolly mammoth, fat, meat, organs, tendons, brain, eyeballs, whatever, we didn't really have a need for plants? And I have suggested that perhaps plants were survival foods. 
that plants, you know, might have been selected by our ancestors during times of scarcity. If anyone here has ever hunted, they know that it's pretty hard to always get something good. Maybe 80,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago when there were tons of megafauna, we could, we could have an abundant supply of animals all the time, but at least, and again, these are imperfect numbers, at least within the last 20 to 30,000 years, depending on the continent we're looking at, there's been megafaunal extinctions. So I don't think we know, um, but I think it's an interesting question. If, if animals can provide us with everything we need to function as humans, and again, that's sort of an ongoing conversation, then if we had access to animals, is there a need for plants? And the downside to plants is something I've talked about a lot, though we haven't talked about it a lot here. It's, you know, they have anti-nutrients. They, they're, not, they're not always benign. They're not just um, totally friendly species. And throughout our history, at least recent history, anthropology and ethnography, we can see that at least recent hunter-gatherers went to great lengths to, to detoxify a lot of those plants in those situations. And so the corollary question is, if they have a lot of animals, would they have even bothered to eat those plants? Maybe. Maybe not. It's an interesting so, question. So, well, I mean, what do you make of the correlation between latitude and animal product consumption? The data that, that I've seen indicate that basically the further you go from the equator, the greater the animal and lower the plant consumption. You get up into the Arctic and plants are equal to or less than 5% of calories. You get down to the equator and animal foods bottom out at 36% of calories. So what I see when I look at that is that First of all, no one's carnivore or vegan, but it seems as though you know plant foods are becoming more and more limited as you get into the Arctic, and the more plant foods are available, the more higher the plant food consumption is. And it does make sense to me that, like to some degree, obviously, if there's a giant animal that you can hunt and you get all your calories from that, you probably won't go looking for plant foods. Um, but at the same time, it seems like at the equator there are big animals and people do hunt them and they do eat mostly those animals for an extended period of time, but they also feast rather heavily on the calorie and protein dense plant foods that are there. And there's this famous story from one of the uh, Kung San where an anthropologist asked them, and this is not a, this is, this is contrary more to agriculture than to carnivory, but they asked them, you see everyone has developed agriculture around you. Why don't you develop agriculture? And the guy said, uh, why would we develop agriculture when we have all these mongongo nuts? But it seems like you could infer into what they're saying that by their behavior, they also say, why hunt another giraffe when I just hunted a giraffe two weeks ago, just got done eating a bunch of giraffe and there's a bunch of mongongo nuts right here. I mean, that's what their behavior plays out. So if... I mean, if, if plants are the choice that you make when you don't have animals, why is equatorial hunter-gatherer, why are equatorial hunter-gatherer diets so high in plant foods? The magongo nut story is pretty interesting, actually, because the only reason they have access to that many magongo nuts is because the elephants can't be hunted anymore. And they've changed the, the sort of oh, the ecosystem. By the, by the law? Yeah, by the law. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I think that there's, it's a great idea. It's a great question. The, the, the corollary question or the follow-up question in my mind is, are there really that many big animals left? Like maybe they can hunt giraffes. I didn't know the Kung San 
could still hunt giraffes. They certainly can't still hunt I don't elephants. Know if they ca- I don't know if they I don't, can anymore. I don't think they can. There's not a whole lot of big animals left. And I think about this all the time when I'm out in the woods hunting as well. Um, the, the animals we have on the earth now are not very fatty. And as you know, the fat is pretty important. Well, either fat or carbohydrates are pretty important to human nutrition. And think of those nutrients as kind of, you know, one or the other or both are pretty essential. We can't just eat protein. This is rabbit starvation and it doesn't work. And so when I go out hunting, like the, the, there's nothing, unless I'm going to get a buffalo, you know, on a special ranch, there's not even big animals anymore. So there's not a whole lot of availability to get animal sources of fat. And perhaps there are big animals in equatorial regions, but I, I, I'm not aware of them much anymore. I, I think that they can't hunt elephants anymore. And in speaking with my friend, Miki Bendor, who's a paleoanthropologist, he was telling me that because they can't hunt the elephants, the elephants are overrunning the savanna and they're actually destroying the boobab trees. They'll like break them down. They'll just, they'll crush them. So the elephants are changing the landscape in certain ways. And Do you know how old this phenomenon is? Because when I, when I read um, ethnography on the Hadza, and I don't, I don't have the papers on hand, so I don't remember how old it was. They were eating 20% of their diet as baobab. Right. I so think is the, are it, yeah. the elephants overrunning them in the last 20 years or is, or is this like a century? I'd have to look. I'm not yeah. sure. I think it's just they, if they can't hunt the elephants, they're going to eat the boobab or the magongo or whatever's available because they don't have the big animals. I mean, if they don't have fat, and this is the question. So the, in the ethnography that I've read of the Hadza, they consider baobab a food group. And I got the sense that like they, they say like, we have to get enough of this. We have to get enough of this. We have to get enough of this. And baobabs in one of those things where they say, we have to get enough of this. Yeah. And it seems like um, it's extremely rich in calcium. And so my impression has been that the Hadza use baobab as sort of like Americans use milk. Like the American government says like, okay, where are we getting these things? And, like, and you can you know, criticize the industrial uh, contribution to the food pyramid slash my plate or whatever. But, but research indicates that we should try to get, I, I think, um, about thousand to 1200 milligrams of calcium a day. And Americans are doing that from milk. It seems to me like, you know, cattle herders did that from milk. Inuit did that from fish bones. Hadza did that from baobab. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, you're thinking of the, of, I guess this is one of the problems that we have in general is that we don't actually have any ethnographic data from a time when there was no contact with Westerners because by definition, Westerners made the ethnographic data. <laughs> so, um, so, and I think like we probably have a better glimpse if we look at a survey of like the older we go back, um, the more, the less and less the, uh, call the colonial governments impacted uh, hunter-gatherer and cattle herding diets and stuff like that. But we don't actually have anything pure to go on. Um, and many people, and many people feel that, or I think it's a compelling suggestion that the landscape for these hunter-gatherers is different than it might have been. So who knows? Yeah, you know, one random one random point on that is um, paleo people often point to how historically. Uh, when we transitioned from a hunter-gatherer to an agricultural lifestyle, we got shorter. But the extant hunter-gatherers are shorter than everyone else. <laughs> Living now. Yeah. And so I asked Stefan Guillenet about this once, and his speculation was that the hunter-gatherer, the extant hunter-gatherers have been pushed into such marginal environments 
that they're basically on the border of food insecurity. Whereas if you look back at the archaeological re record, we're looking at hunter-gatherers that have um, very robust uh, supplies of nutrients. Although I have my own spin on that. When I, when I read um, a collection of uh, paleoanthropological work, my impression has been that hunter-gatherer Hunter, hunting and gathering was never able to sustain the um, resource stress that occurred as hunter-gatherers multiplied. And it was actually pressure to centralize and adopt agriculture to counter that. that so, like, I feel like you know, Jared Diamond said that agriculture was the biggest mistake we ever made. Yeah. I, feel like, I feel like that's kind of the wrong spin on it. Like, we were basically forced into agriculture by hunt, I mean, even you said that hunter, hunters made the megafauna extinct. Well, you can only hunt something extinct so long before it's not a source of calories anymore. And so hunting um, is like, it works for a while, but if you increase your population density enough, you're, you're kind of forced into a more efficient means of producing things. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting when you point out about the living hunter gatherers. And I do think it mirrors the the suggestion that their environments are maybe not what they used to be. I, I think there's pretty good data that at the agricultural transition at the time of the Neolithic revolution around 10 to 12,000 years ago, depending where we look on the earth, skeletons got much shorter and we can see this like at the Dixon mounds. There's been a lot sort of published about the, the increased incidence of parotic hyperostosis and tuberculous lesions and shortening of femurs and other long bones. So I, th I do think that, at least from what I've seen, we did get shorter with the agricultural transition, but the fact that the hunter-gatherers well, we're now... we're tall now. We're, well, we're, we're about back to where we were, right? So the average, I think, was like 5'9", five, 5'10", five, and that's about where it is now, 5'8". So. But it is, I, it, what an interesting point that you point out about the hunter-gatherers, that yeah, that, that does suggest that their environment is probably not what it was, and we have sort of marginalized them and Perhaps it was different. And then I'll just say one more thing. The Neolithic transition, I don't think anybody really knows why that happened. There's a compelling hypothesis that you're referring to that perhaps we overhunted the megafauna. And the other one is, you know, meteoric events like the Younger Dryas event or something creating mass extinctions. But probably it was a major change in the availability of foodstuffs that had been, you know, uniquely valuable for us. And we kind of referred to it earlier, at least within the U.S., if we're talking about the Dixon Mounds, which are in Illinois or Ohio. Um, you know, there's tons of buffalo and I mean, that's a pretty big, you know, that's a big animal, but you can imagine like a woolly mammoth is three times the size of an elephant and a huge amount of fat. Well, you said, you said before, why would you eat plants if you had big megafauna around? I mean, similarly, why would you develop agri, like if, if having mongongo nuts is, is a sufficient reason not to develop agriculture for the Hadza, then certainly having megafauna is a sufficient reason not to develop agriculture and I think that kind of, um, I mean, I, be, I don't have the data on hand anymore, but I, I did do a lot of reading on it. And I based my impression that we were forced into agriculture on the basis that there was evidence for declines in bone health prior to the development of agriculture. And then everything got worse. And then everything got better. I view that as, as, um, as technology development. I mean, I think if we look around us now and... Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't know who originally made this observation. I, I, Peter Thiel has pointed this out. We develop technology, and then we technology causes problems, and then we develop new technologies to solve the problems 
caused by the old technology. But even though we always make problems, we tend to solve things tend to get better as we go on. I mean, you can debate the net betterment in agriculture, but I think that um, I think what happened was we, you know, if you if you actually, I think there's a very good parallel with the industrial revolution. So in the agricultural revolution, you say, oh, we can efficiently produce this grain. And you're like, well, this provides calories. And you don't know jack about the nutrients in that grain. So you eat a diet that's like 90% wheat or 90% corn or something like that. And you, wound up, you wind up with profound nutrient deficiencies because you had no idea how to properly construct a grain-based diet. And you can debate whether a grain-based diet can be as good as an animal-based diet, but it's certainly the case that the worst grain-based diet you can, one of the worst grain-based diet you can have is when 90% of your diet is just one grain. We did something similar in the Industrial Revolution. We started refining bread before we knew what the vitamins were. So we produced this source of calories that had no nutrition in it whatsoever. Things are better now that we fortify bread. You can debate the value of fortified bread, but it's still classical nutrient deficiencies were rampant at the time of the early industrial revolution and industrializing food that are not now because we figured out how to live with white bread. Like maybe we don't live as well as we would without white bread, but we figured out how to coexist with white bread in a way that we did not figure out in 1925. Um, and so I think that's what we're seeing there. But I think, so, I mean, we're kind of agreed that the last, you know, the, the ethnographic record is co complicated to interpret because of the effects of Westernization throughout the period where it's been, where it's been um, uh, developed. So I think that's a good segue to go back into some of the data on what we might be able to infer from prehistoric remains. So um, when I look at the prehistoric record, I think one of the most compelling things, which I've, we've talked a little bit about this as we were preparing, um, one of the most compelling things is that the salivary amylase gene, which functions to produce uh, an enzyme in the saliva called amylase, which breaks starch into glucose, and its main function, as far as we can tell, is to allow, when you eat starch, to allow a better glycemic response to it because you start breaking a little bit of that starch into sugar. You activate taste receptors in the tongue, and that activates an insulin, uh, a preparatory phase insulin response. It allows a smoother glycemic response. Um, so the higher your salivary amylase, the better your glycemic response to starch. It's a very starch-specific adaptation because its function is to digest starch. And the data from multiple um, multiple modern Western societies, including Japan, America, and Europe, and from uh, multiple hunter-gatherer and non-Westernized societies, whether those, whether those groups are starch eaters or not, the data indicate that about 99% of all humans measured have duplications in the salivary amylase gene, at least one duplication, if not uh, you know, five, six, seven duplications. The more there's a history of starch eating in that group, the more duplications there are. But even when there's no known historic contribution of starch to the diet, those duplications are still there. They're not found in any of the other apes, except bonobos, who, but theirs is inactivated. And they're not found in Neanderthals, and they're not found in Denisovans. Um, so my impression from that is, like, no one knows when the salivary amylase gene was duplicated. But I think that data indicates that if it's so almost universal 
among all humans from very disparate ancestry. For example, like when was the last time that a European had common ancestry with like a Hadza? It, you know, we're ta- I think this is back towards our most recent common ancestor in that area. It's clearly after we split off from the other apes, it's clearly after we split off from Neanderthals and Denisovans, but it's clearly before the most recent common ancestor of all humans that have been measured. And since the humans that have been measured are so disparate as to include European Americans and uh, very you know, highly isolated hunter-gatherers from equatorial regions, uh, this is indicating to me that it is way, way back towards our most recent common modern human ancestor. And that doesn't mean that we need to eat starch, but it means to me that however high the amount of animal foods in the past in our past diet was the contribution of starch to the diet must have been if it was significant to derive a nearly complete selective sweep for the duplication of a starch specific gene it must have been meaningful enough to say that that diet was not purely carnivorous that's how i see it this is really fascinating chris i was thinking about this so the point that you make is really important to note about the non-salivary, non, the non-presence of salivary amylase duplications in Neanderthal and Denisovans. And just so people understand, this is, you know, kind of human lineage and evolution. You know, the way that I've learned this, and again, I'm not a paleoanthropologist, is that, you know, probably we diverged from apes about 6 million years ago. I did a podcast with Bill Von Hippel about this. And you know, there was this East African Rift Valley, perhaps half of the Rift Valley moved up when there was this glacial or this uh, tectonic plate shift and the Rift Valley raised. The forests essentially changed to savanna and our ancestors moved out of the trees six million years ago as Australopithecus. Then we went through a series of sort of increasingly human looking people with Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis. And the way that I've understood this is that Many people believe that Homo erectus, uh, which was around about 1.8 million years ago, was probably the precursor for the Denisovans and the Neanderthals, and that that's the precursor, and that Homo sapiens only showed up 500,000 years ago, 350,000 years ago. And so we share a common ancestor with Neanderthals and Denisovans, but it's not believed now that Neanderthals and Denisovans evolved from Homo sapiens. And I think that's, that's fairly interesting. And so when we... And then our ancestors, Homo sapiens, evolved somewhere in Africa, right? This, this, you know, this fertile eastern part of northern Africa. And then the stuff that I've seen suggests that our Homo sapien ancestors left Africa about 70 to 80,000 years ago, maybe even sooner, 50 to 60,000 years ago, moved up into Europe, and at that point encountered Neanderthals, who were there as Homo erectus descendants who'd been there from before, and then moving east encountered Denisovans and other races of people, who are also descended from Homo erectus. And so what we're doing when we encounter those people 50 to 60,000 years ago is coming back into contact with like Homo erectus lineages. And so I think you're right. I think it is interesting to note that we all have this salivary amylase duplication and somewhere in that Homo sapien lineage, we probably got it. Now, the key question for me is when did we get it? And I don't think we know when we got it, but they, they left Africa for some reason, right? So I think this kind of makes sense, almost in the context of what we were talking about before. Was it a scarcity of large animals and an increased reliance on 
tuberous vegetables or need for starches that sort of led us to move out, that would make sense to me. But the other really interesting thing about the salivary amylase duplication is that for the vast majority of our evolution as humans, we didn't have it, right? Neanderthals don't have it, Denisomans don't have it, Homo erectus doesn't have it, Homo habilis didn't have it, Homo hyaluronensis doesn't have it. And to me, that suggests that we were not eating many starches up until 60 to 70,000 years ago because, or if they were, you know, why would you get a salivary amylase duplication if you were eating, you know, 70,000 years ago, if you start eating a lot of starches, that makes sense. That's a selective pressure to have a little bit more of an advantageous genetic polymorphism. But the three, six million years before that, it's an interesting question. We probably were not eating a whole lot of starch because we didn't get a salivary amylase duplication. To me, it brings up this interesting question. If Neanderthal and Denisovans had a salivary amylase duplication, you could argue much more strongly that those individuals and Homo erectus and even further back, we were eating starches. But the fact that they, do, they don't, to me, is probably the most interesting part of the story saying, yeah, I don't know. That to me suggests we were not eating starches until 60 to 70,000 years ago at the latest, and then maybe even more, free, more soon, you know, more recently than that. So we don't know. The papers that we shared, the, the furthest back we see it is 12,000 years ago. And that's in the time of the Neolithic well, Revolution. Yeah, but whoa, hold, hold on. I, that's true. Um, but that's from archaeological remains. I don't, I don't know that it's been looked at in many archaeological remains. What's also true is that, so this, this paper, the first paper that came out with it, and I, I don't remember if this is complete or not, but looked at Japanese Hadza, European Americans, Byaka, Buti, Datog, and Yakut. I don't know when European Americans, Japanese, and uh, Bhutis had the last common ancestor, but right. it's got to be way older than that archaeological remain. I mean, yeah, probably. The, the, in, the inference has to the inference has to be about who has it and who doesn't. So I think I I completely agree with you that that indicates that all the other lineages that were that it, we sprouted off from um, didn't have it. But I think the fact that it's shared across all these different hunter-gatherers that we, I don't know when our most recent common ancestor with them is, but I'm guessing it's got to be almost as old as the most recent common ancestor of all humanity because uh, Bhuti did not recently give birth to any European Americans. You know what I mean? Like we well, emerged I mean, think, from them a long time ago. I mean, when you're saying a long time ago, we could say like, I mean, I don't know. I'm just guessing, but to me, it, it seems like the, 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 the most common or the most recent common ancestor would be 70, 60, 70,000 years ago as we move out of Africa. That's Homo sapiens moving out of Africa. That's the most common ancestor. And there, from there, we move across the planet. So whether or not it was present for 500,000 or 70,000 years, I don't know. But I think it's possible that at least the, the hypothesis or one hypothesis would be, did we move yeah. out of Africa? And, and at that, and you know, Miki Bendor has shown this really well, that as humans move to different continents, we cause megafaunal extinction in all those continents. So you've got to wonder, was it a megafaunal extinction and overhunting in Africa that caused us to move out of Africa and you could imagine that a megafaunal extinction could have a need for starchy vegetables and the, you know, the salivary amylase duplication. So it's interesting. So that, that strikes me as very plausible that megafaunal extinction could have underlied the initial adoption of starch. But 
Um, but this has to predate the mic. So I actually, I have to be very frank. I am not as well versed on the research on the uh, migrations and Neanderthals and Denisovans. It's been a very long while since I've followed anyone on this. My understanding is that it's debated whether um, we migrated out of Africa 50, 70,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago, or whether there was like three different migrations out of Africa that wound up converging. I think that's very controversial. I think the most recent common ancestors also somewhat controversial, but um, but let's say it's 70,000 or 200,000, um, like the Wikipedia page for it has it pegged at 200,000. I don't think it matters. So like some time that was um, prior to the splitting off of basically everyone that's alive, right? I mean, if, if hunter-gatherer, if isolated hunter-gatherers in Africa right now have these duplications, then it's not just traced to the migration out of Africa. It's traced to the most recent common ancestor of the people who stayed in Africa and evolved there and the people who migrated out of Africa. Um, so, but the exact date, I don't think matters that much. I think the point where, I think we're, agree, I think we're largely agreeing on this was uh, at least as recent as humans split off from Neanderthal, Denisovans, other apes, etc., cetera, um, and did not have our ancestors up there. I think, what, I think where we're disagreeing is where to put the emphasis. So why would we not be putting the emphasis on the evolution that shaped present humans? Why would we prioritize the diet that we evolved? If we evolved from homo, um, the ancestors of Homo habilis and erectus to move to what has become the ancestors of everyone alive today, why wouldn't the, the changes to the genome of the ancestors of all living humans be the primary thing to look at rather than the, you know, let's say megafauna extinction drove uh, a starch-rich diet at a certain point, and we are all descendants from those people. Um, is it, I mean, wouldn't it be fair to point out that the, the shaping of our genome has come from that inclusion of starch in the diet? Well, I think that then the question becomes how much is the genome shaped by that, right? I think that there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a, an inference there around like, oh, it had a huge impact or it affected us profoundly. And I don't think that I, I can't come up with a schema by which I can quantify that. I, and, you know, my perspective is because we developed this adaptation, does that mean it's ideal for us or does it mean we had we had the ability to have perhaps a little more efficiency with a fallback food. Look, how nutritious is a sweet potato really? And what kind of starches are these people eating? Like this to me is like, I mean, it's still like these tubers pale in comparison to animal meat and organs. And I think that, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how you would feel about that statement, but look, I mean, you can get complex carbohydrates, but you're primarily looking at a calorie source you can get a decent amount of potassium and maybe some beta carotene, but I don't honestly know what ancestral tubers were like. Um, my suspicion is that they were pretty horrible and not very much like what we see today. I wouldn't want to eat them. I don't think I'd want to eat them. And so well, we, we actually, we actually have pretty good data on, on even very recent evolution in potatoes. So in the Andes, potatoes were domesticated and um, even, even uh, in, even in living history, 
an ethnography, it's been documented that they have many varieties of potatoes and the ancestral varieties of potatoes, they will freeze dry and they will stomp with their bare feet in water and then they will pass running water through them for three days to detoxify the bitter alkaloids that are poisonous. And the whiter, and they always peel the potatoes and they also have bred um, whiter, less bitter potatoes that are less toxic. And in America, I believe the last case of potato poisoning was in the 1940s. There hasn't been a potato poisoning case largely because we've further bred them to be even less toxic. Um, so, I mean, clearly the, um, the inclusion of plants in the diet has at various points, well, I mean, it depends, right? Because, you know, some plants are more toxic than others, clearly. Um, but in we could say in general, I think, you know, the other thing is this is also reflecting like specialists in certain foods. So if you're going to gather tubers and they're, you're going to eat like 90 different plant foods and one of them is a, is, a is a moderately poisonous potato and you never get the dose of that that does much to you, it's not that big a deal. But if you're going to specialize in potato consumption, then all of a sudden the bitter alkaloids and their toxic effects become very meaningful. And so you have to specialize cultural adaptations of how to process those things. Not that much different from the way that cattle herders develop cultural specializations around um, consuming milk such as fermenting it to reduce lactose content, and not that much different from the way we develop cultural adaptations around tool use and the ability to hunt animals better. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, it's, tr it's totally true that plants can be toxic, that there are cultural adaptations to that, um, but cultural, adapt cultural adaptations and innovations around food sources has been a, a sort of constant feature of human evolution since we developed fire and tools. Um, I mean, so, but yeah, I mean, if you develop the fire and the tool and you cook the meat, generally you don't have toxins that you need to leach out with running water. So you have a point there, <laughs> but, um, okay. I mean, so, but the point that I'm making about these duplications, it's not that this shows we need to eat starch. We don't need to eat starch. We'll live without starch. What it shows it's an, it's an, uh, it's, it's an evolution of an ability to handle starch. Well, and what I think it shows is not that we all need to eat starch. It's that starch was, I mean, we, we talked about was, how important was starch eating? I think it was so overwhelmingly important that the selective sweep to duplicate the amylase gene was nearly 100% fixed. Um, you know, 1% of people from all the population studied um, have, don't, don't have the duplication. So it's, it's a hundred percent in some cultures, some cultures have one or two people in them that have been measured that don't have it. Um, and I, I just, all that I think that means is that it's, it's one really compelling example that plant foods had been consumed in our ancestral diet and that those shaped our genome. Um, and so my, I guess to turn this around, we, we, we talked about, we focused more so far on the ancestral part, less about the utility part, but what I was asking was to, to what degree is this a return to the ancestral diet versus an innovation in um, what we can use to make people healthier in a contextual way. And so when I look at this, what I see is 
This is not a return to the ancestral diet. Yes, the ancestral diet definitely had more animal products than what many people are advocating in modern society as a healthy diet. But I believe the ancestral diet was omnivorous and at times higher in plants, at times higher in animals, but, but, generally, but generally omnivorous. And that I see carnivore as a way to like, yes, get inspiration from the fact that we come from hunters, um, but, that, but it's really in, in terms of evolving a 100% carnivore diet or a diet that does not have very meaningful nutritional contribution from plant foods, I see that as taking inspiration from the past, but really being the development of a new idea that has some medical application. And the thing I, you know, we'll talk about keto in a little bit. I see keto as kind of the same thing, but it was a very um, hypothesis-driven way to treat a specific disorder of epilepsy and has evolved from that to, to generalize to other things. Carnivore, I see kind of like it, it got put in place more at the grassroots level, and now it's in search of a scientific definition. So like many people are doing carnivore and saying it helped me lose weight, it helped clear up my eczema, it helped cure this autoimmune disease. Um, but, why, but why it works and what the boundaries of u- its utility are is something where we need to sort of reverse engineer from what people are doing at an anecdotal level. Whereas keto, we developed it within, with inspiration from fasting physiology. We developed it and said it treats this thing. And then other people broadened it on an anecdotal level to say maybe it can work for these other things. So, um, I mean, that's my perspective on ancestral versus modern tool. Well, I think that, I mean, I think the salivary amylase duplication could be seen in another light. Like I said, I mean, what's the common ancestor? The fact that it didn't happen until who knows, 50 to 70,000 years ago suggests that the, for the majority of our evolution, we were probably not eating a whole lot of tubers. So in that sense, it could be very ancestral. And this is the salivary amylase duplication is a recent modification or adaptation to a changing landscape. I agree with you. I do think that we're probably all descended from a, people's, a people that were forced to eat these foods. But as you've noted, tubers are not the best foods on the planet. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously making a non-scientific qualification there, but I mean, cassava. Value judgments are okay. <laughs> yeah, cassava, ancestral potatoes. These things are toxic, man. A lot of the plant foods we eat today have an ancestral form that was very toxic. Almonds. I mean, these are cyanogenic glycosides. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of these things are quite toxic and we've made them into more palatable and less poisonous things. But I mean, cassava is just like what you're saying. When people in South America use cassava to get rid of the, you know, the, the hydrocyanic acid, they have to do the same sorts of things, crush it, bake it in the sun, off gas, et cetera. So, you know, so I, there, that's, I think that I didn't mean to interrupt you. Sorry. I'm open to the fact that these shaped us. I just don't think that um, I, I see it in a different light. I see it as like, wow, the majority of the time we were probably not eating a lot of tubers. And if we weren't eating a lot of tubers, we were probably eating a lot of animals and, and that shaped us for millions of years. Um, you know, as we talked about before the podcast, you know, 70,000 years is plenty of time for our, us to change, but it's quite interesting. I think from an ancestral perspective, you could argue with the salivary amylase duplication from the complete opposite perspective and say, Hey, this is really ancestral. And then with regard to the, to the, you know, the, the modern therapeutic intervention, I think you're right about that in some sense. I, I think it's a very possible, plausible modern therapeutic intervention. And um, 
we've sort of been looking at this from two different perspectives that are disparate. One of them is a nutrient perspective, and the other one is, we haven't really talked on this, is sort of the toxins and immunologic perspective, which is much less well-defined, but at least clinically and mostly anecdotally at this point, what we see for some people is that removal of plant foods seems to ameliorate some degree of immune activation. And the hypothesis that I've you know, generated personally for that is just that, hey, these plant foods could be triggering you know, immune activity via a variety of mechanisms. And when we think about it from that perspective, yeah, that's, that's a whole different spin on it and, and very much of a medical therapeutic intervention of this type of eating to say, hey, if you don't need plant foods in your diet, your distant ancestors were eating mostly animal foods, you know, and you, and you construct a carnivore diet well, the removal of plant foods could be a really powerful intervention for people who are not finding um, health or wellness or, or their goals or not finding relief from their, their suffering in other ways, and especially if we can define that it's safe and, and doable and, and sustainable from a nutritional, you know, clinical perspective. So I was talking to Chris Kresser earlier today. Uh, earlier in the morning, I recorded a, uh, a gut, uh, gut-focused uh, panel with uh, Chris Kresser and a couple other people. And, um, and he had mentioned this on Joe Rogan in the past too. Uh, his hypothesis is that a uh, carnivore diet is basically excluding most of the fermentable carbohydrates. And by uh, removing a lot of things that feed you know, you take someone whose microbiome is messed up, removing the source of food for the negative uh, parts of the microbiome, the bad bugs, um, could produce relief from symptoms that way. I think that's an interesting hypothesis. I think the plant toxin is an interesting hypothesis. Um, one, I'd like to make two points. One is, I think that if... The th- so the thing is, like, if th- there could be a variety of problems that people have with plant foods, and it just happens to be the on a probability based level, it happens to be the case that um, even if it were so, like, just to play a, a completely made up numbers game, even if it were the case that half of people with autoimmune conditions have some plant t- compound as a trigger for them and half have some animal compound as a trigger for them. Not saying this is the case, I'm just saying as a thought experiment. Then what you would still expect to see is that as people play around, you know, people self-select for their diets. They don't talk about it that much usually if the diet doesn't work for them or if it's not appealing to them. Some people find success, they find other people who find success, they congregate and they form a community. So you would expect that some people who are drawn to the idea of a carnivore diet, they basically have a 50-50 chance of eliminating their trigger. And if they have success, they're going to aggregate, form a community, that community is going to have a greater voice. And it's going to create a sense that all over the place, people are curing their autoimmune conditions. It might be that one person had to take out rice, one person had to take out wheat, one person had to take out oxalates, one person had to take out cyanogenic glycosides, or something like that. It could be, be a very heterogeneous pool of people. In the same way where if I had like a beef allergy and I went vegan, I would, and I had no idea that I had beef allergy, I would experience profound benefit from going vegan. Um, But veganism wasn't, that's not because veganism was the cure for my condition. It's because I just happened to cut out half of my foods and I cut out the one that had the the trigger in it. Um, So I think that the, the, the thing 
what we have is we have a collection of people that may or may not be uh, homogeneous. Like there could, it could be the case that for most or all or some of them, they needed to remove all plant foods. But it could also be that you know 20% of these people needed to eliminate X type of plant food. 20% needed to eliminate Y type of plant food. And so I think that studying the mechanism of how people are benefiting is where there's really going to be like game-changing ability to like really tailor the diets to the people that need them. I agree. I agree with you, Chris. Um, you know, what happens clinically in medicine, though, is that mainstream Western medicine doesn't acknowledge that food of any sort is triggering illness. And I think that elimination diets are the, one of the most powerful tools we have in medicine. And 99% of physicians in the world are not using them because they're not taught to us in medical school. And so I think that the, I think that the, the paradigm shifting concept here is that food can trigger immunologic reactions. And connected with that is a broadened spectrum of autoimmunity. I think a lot of diseases that we have, a lot of illness that we have as modern humans is autoimmune in nature. is isn't thought about that way necessarily. And I think that if mainstream Western medicine realized that food could trigger disease, then we would begin to actually make uh, headway with this. And I think that regardless of the type of elimination diet that people choose to do, an elimination diet is very powerful. I think the carnivore diet is a particularly appealing elimination diet to me because of the nutritional adequacy of that diet and the ability of a carnivore diet to provide so many nutrients um, in such a small package, right? Um, if you are going to do a vegan diet, it's, in my opinion, basically impossible to get all the nutrients you need without extreme attention to detail and large amounts of food. Um, and I think that more often than not, plant-based diets result in long-term nutritional insuff insufficiency. So I worry about the sustainability of vegan diets, but I do think that they can help some people if they eliminate the thing that they are, you know, reacting to. Now, how common is beef allergy? Great question. That's the question that I should be asking, you know? I don't know. I don't know how many people. Does a carnivore diet fix everyone? Nope. Does it fix a whole heck of a lot of people? It's pretty powerful, man. I mean, you know, I was talking to Michael Ruscio on his podcast, and, and he also uses a carnivore diet in his practice for people with gut issues. And, you know, he said he thought maybe 70% of people got better on the carnivore diet, and still 30% of people didn't get better from gut issues. And I thought, Michael, 70%, man, show me another thing in Western medicine that can do that. Like, they're pretty rare. And I think elimination diets are efficacious. Now, there's more to understand here. I think the cases where people don't seem to do well on a carnivore diet are fascinating. It's like, what's missing there? Are they allergic to beef? Is there something in beef that's triggering them? I don't know. Um, or is there something else, you know, something that a carnivore diet is not going to remove? Clinically, what I've seen is that if somebody has an overgrowth of certain types of bacteria, clostridium difficile, other things, switching to a, a meat-based diet isn't necessarily going to allow the gut flora to eliminate a very pathogenic organism switching to an animal-based diet isn't going to allow people to get rid of a, a huge burden of toxic heavy metals. And I, I think that there may be some people that react to animal foods, but I, I'm not convinced of that yet. So I think it's a really powerful elimination diet. And part of my message is just bringing some sanity to the current environment that's demonizing meat. Um, because I think that it's a, in my opinion, 
I have a strong belief that it's a much better elimination diet than a vegan diet is for many reasons. And I do have concerns that many plant toxins can trigger the immune system. And at least clinically, my sense is that animal foods do it a whole heck of a lot less. Yeah. I, so I think that, I mean, we clearly have clinical experience from different people showing benefits to carnivore, showing benefits to vegan, showing benefits to semi-versions of each. Um, I mean, and, and then also there are, there are standard therapies in gut circles, like low FODMAP diets that carnivore diets are, right? Like a carnivore diets, a zero FODMAP diet. Um, so I think, you know, when we're talking about clinical experience, uh, clinical experience can provide a set of possibilities of what exists, but it really can't attach numbers to the percentages because every clinician has a non-random sample of people that come to them. And if you have a, a popular internet or book presence, then that becomes ver a very non-random sample. So oh, yeah. I Absolutely. think that's why, like, I don't think Joel Furman is lying when he says that his clinical experience is that only 10% of people need more than 10% animal products in their diet. It's just that no one goes to see Joel Furman if his book isn't appealing to them. And if they try his diet and they feel like crap, they're probably not going to go back to him. So what we really need, I think, is where we probably make some headway would be you know, how do you, if you take a low FODMAP diet and you take a standard IBS treatment and you take a carnivore diet, how do they compare head to head in studies? But I want to give you the last word on this topic of who is this for, because you're the one with clinical experience of people on a carnivore diet and I don't have any. So if, how would you give a, like a general guideline to like who should try a carnivore diet? Are there certain, I mean, apart from just saying everyone should, are there certain types of things that you could look for that would make someone more likely to benefit from a carnivore diet? I mean, this is kind of what we were just talking about. There's very little that I've seen to disqualify someone from a carnivore diet. And can I say with 100% certainty that a carnivore diet is going to fix everyone? No, but I've seen some pretty amazing things that, that really, you know, that really shook me throughout my medical education, things I've never seen with mainstream, you know, medications um, or, you know, things that were pretty, pretty profound and patients who were previously recalcitrant to many therapies and many diets who, who got better with the exclusion of plants. And so I'm pretty darn convinced that it's a, it's a valuable adjunct. Is it the only medication, you know, quote unquote, is it the only therapy? No, absolutely not. Is it the only dietary prescription? No, absolutely not. But it's a really powerful one. I think that the question is not, who should try a carnivore diet, but maybe who should not try a carnivore diet. And, um, you know, I think that the, the common questions I get are, I have heart disease. Can I do a carnivore diet? I have gout. Can I do a carnivore diet? I have fatty liver disease. Can I do a carnivore diet? And for all of those, I would say unequivocally, absolutely. You can do a carnivore diet. The only situation that I've run into where I'm pausing for a moment is chronic kidney disease. And I think that the data there is not entirely clear, but if somebody already has pre-existing kidney dysfunction, dysfunction, we'd want to have some attention to macros and follow the kidney function pretty carefully. There's also some interesting data, I believe it's in rats, to suggest that a ketogenic diet could be helpful for polycystic kidney disease, which is not an acquired thing. It's a genetic, you know, cyst formation in the kidneys. And I, I have seen examples of people having clinical improvement at a, a level of humans with a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet for polycystic kidney disease. So in that kidney disease, I have seen improvement. But if people have pre-existing chronic kidney disease related to hypertension, 
or, or other things, diabetes, I think it's fine to try. You just have to be careful of the, the protein macros and make sure that the kidney function doesn't decline and there's lots of nuance there. But I think the, the, the question is who should, who should not try a carnivore diet? And that's the only situation I'm aware of at this point off the top of my head. The rest of the, the situations I think are completely fine and people could give it a try. Um, as we've said throughout this podcast, uh, it's important to, to educate yourself about it and, and to be aware of how to construct it intentionally. Speaking of keto, um, we, <laughs> we decided uh, one of the things that we had loose threads from our part one was we mentioned we wanted to talk about keto and we never really got there. Um, so now we can. Um, let's start by like, what do, what do keto and carnivore have to do with each other? Are they two different things or is there some overlap here that helps us segue into keto? There's definitely some overlap here. I think that for the majority of people, <laughs> when you eliminate carbohydrates almost entirely from your diet, you're going to get some level of ketogenesis. It's difficult to quantify that. We usually use serum levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate, which as you know, are not the only ketone in the bloodstream. And it's in flux, so it's not perfect. We certainly can't measure levels of citrate, acetyl-CoA, or enzymes of gluconeogenesis at a, at a clinical level. So we don't have a great sense or, you know, enzymes of beta oxidation at a clinical level. So we don't really know, but we generally speaking, the amount of carbohydrates that we consume on a carnivore diet is extremely low. Now the amount of protein and fat percentages can vary widely in, what are in the you way typically it, having people go on for protein. You know, what I recommend for people as protein is about 0.8 to one gram per pound of lean, uh, per pound of lean body weight or, a pound of body weight, somewhere in that sense. So I'm 170 pounds. I probably eat about 150 to 170 grams of protein per day. I, I interviewed Stan Efferding on my podcast the other day. And I, it's always a question. I think, you know, when I had Rob Wolf on, I said, how much protein, how much protein? I just am curious what people think. And um, I, I think that, you know, a, a gram per pound of body weight is probably a pretty safe place to be. I think that more than that, uh, there's limited evidence that more than that is, is beneficial. So, um, and I don't think that... And what's your BHB? Uh, you know, when I've, it depends on how much fat I'm getting. It's usually between 0.7 and 1.5 or 2 for me. How close I, So I, I think you and I would probably agree on this. Uh, carnivore diet from carbohydrate restriction is going to tend to increase ketone levels and the relative amount of fat and protein in the diet is going to determine how much. More fat, less protein, more ketones... Uh, more protein, less fat, less ketones. Would you agree with that? Yeah, but I think there'll always be some level of ketones, even if people are eating. Yeah, just from not eating any carbs. Yeah, yeah, you're going to get some. It's trace, you know, and I've always wanted to ask Dom, you know, if there's really, I don't know that there's any real clinical magical thing that happens at 0.5 millimolar, but. um, I agree with that. Yeah. So, okay. So we talked about who is a carnivore diet for. Uh, Let's talk about who a keto diet is for. Um, so uh, what, where do you see the difference in the clinical utility? Would you put some people on a keto diet that you wouldn't carnivore or vice versa? Or would you tend to emphasize that the carnivore diet be keto or more keto for, for certain people? And generally, for people who don't care about the carnivore diet who are listening in any way, um, who would, would you in any context tell those people they should be on a plant-inclusive keto diet? I mean... My clinical experience, and again, this is a confirmation bias um, or a bit of a selection bias, but Mm. is that a lot of people find a carnivore diet to be easier to stick to with less cravings than a ketogenic diet. Um, And so when when given the option of a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet, if somebody's willing to do a full elimination of plant foods, I think it's a better option. 
I always kind of frame it in the perspective, like, well, let's see if we can do 30 days of carnivore and then we can add plant foods back if you'd like or see how you feel and kind of go from there. But, um, you know, generally speaking, I think that ketogenic diets often include a lot of foods that I'm not super excited about. They often include a lot of nuts, which are high in oxalates or lectins and I think can be triggering for a lot of people. Um, they, they can include a lot of leafy green vegetables, which from my perspective, maybe don't have the best things in them, you know, more oxalates, isothiocyanates, which I don't think are great. It's a whole separate podcast we'd have to do. More, more folate, more potassium. <laughs> right. So, you know, I, and then I, I also think that there's nuance around sweet taste and incretins like GLP-1. Um, when we put anything sweet in our mouth, whether it's sorbitol or erythritol or glycine, even things that don't are, are not carbohydrates and that don't trigger insulin classically, we can get GLP and other incretins being released. And I think that people end up with a lot of cravings or difficulty it's maintaining a ketogenic diet to a greater extent than they do a carnivore diet. I've heard people say that. Again, there's a lot of bias here, but people tend to feel like they can stick to a carnivore diet more easily, probably because it's all savory flavors and the sweet is not changing satiety, signaling, or incretins. So given the option, I would opt for a carnivore diet for those reasons, less, less plant toxins. A higher, so a higher protein carnivore diet. Why do you say that? Well, I mean, how are you distinguishing them? Or you mean a carnivore? Carnivore over keto. Carnivore versus keto. So yeah. to say there's a carnivore, we said before any carnivore diet is going to be at least a little bit ketogenic. Right, right. But when I'm you thinking, say carnivore versus keto, you mean a carnivore diet that's lower fat, higher protein? No, no. I mean, I mean plants versus no plants. You know. Oh, I see. Yeah, I'm saying you. Okay, you find. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're saying that the eat that even the little bit of sugars in low carb, low calorie vegetables that would be included on a plant inclusive keto diet, you think even those tend to be problematic from a, a satiety perspective. I think they can be problematic, and not even those and the sweet the sweeteners used in processed ketogenic foods, quote unquote, right? The sugar alcohols, glycine, things like this. So yeah, and it's the exclusion of plants. Now, if we're talking about macros on a carnivore diet, which perhaps is your corollary question, like I said, I generally look for about 0.8 to one gram of protein per pound of body weight. And then either from anywhere from one to one to two to one in terms of fat to protein ratio, uh, based on what people feel like works for them. So I think that's going to, so you, you don't really, you don't really pursue a treatment effect of having more fat, less protein for the, to it, for the deliberate purpose of raising keto levels. No, I don't. Okay. I don't. So I see, I mean, the way that I look at keto is um, much in the way that I look at carnivore, I don't think that the, that a, a consistent su- sustained ketogenic diet is ancestral. I see the ketogenic diet as a mimic of fasting physiology developed by the Mayo Clinic in the 1920s for the specific purpose of treating epilepsy. Um, I think the evidence around that is very supportive of the idea that increasing GABA activity and or decreasing glutamate activity is the primary way that keto diets treat epilepsy. I know there's a lot of other hypotheses, but I think not only is that is there very robust evidence that they do that, but there but it's also the case that almost every single drug that's used to treat epilepsy targets GABA activity. There's, uh, I think, a single exception 
is a drug that's used to target low voltage calcium ion channels that treats absence epilepsy, which is a very specific type of epilepsy. So I think there's a very clean story across the glutamate GABA balance effect of keto and all the drugs used to treat epilepsy. And I think that that keto is a very hypothesis-driven way to, to replace the drugs that were available at that time. I now see that it's generalizing very much. I think that many of the things that it's promoted for are, it can be an effective tool for, but it's not a very specific tool for. So a lot of people use it for weight loss, for example. I mean, yes, of course, keto is going to work for weight loss. There's just a lot of other ways to create, to treat weight loss. It's a debatable issue, but of why, you know, how sustainable are different approaches, how effective are different approaches. But I'm in the school of thought that the sustainability of the behavior change is the main thing that drives um, whether weight loss is successful over time. Um, and if people want to use keto for that and they find it to be useful for that, more power to them. Um, but I think where keto is going to have the highest likelihood of generalizing as a very specific treatment is going to be uh, diseases that are psychiatric and or neurological in origin that are related to glutamate GABA balance. Uh, many psychiatric disorders are included in that. Many neurodegenerative disorders are included in that. Even things like chronic pain and asthma are included in that. And um, my, I mean, my hypothesis is that the glutamate GABA effect is so central to the effect of the keto diet that it is um, that that's where we're going to see the most bang for the buck in terms of showing strong results uh, clinically. Um, insulin resistance and things like that, um, sure, I believe it can be used for those. I just don't think it's very specific. Like most diets that create sustained improvements in nutrition comp combined with improvements in body composition are going to help with metabolic disorders like that. Um, so that's the way that I see the keto diet. You know, I would expand that a little bit from the neurotransmitter perspective. I think it's, and again, this is just nuanced, but I think that sodium is sodium channels are in there. I think chloride channels are in there. I guess the chloride channels, a GABA, uh, you know, sodium and chloride channels are, are all related to glutamate GABA balance, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that, yeah, I think that it's certainly been used in psychiatric illness with interesting effect. You know, Chris Palmer at MGH McLean is using it for schizophrenia and bipolar um, with with good effect. And yeah, there's there's some some efficacy there in terms of uh, the way that it changes things in the brain. I think that's one potential therapeutic option. I also think that um, a lot of ketogenic diets are elimination diets of some sense because you're eliminating some foods. So people could have immunologic benefit from a ketogenic diet as well if they're eliminating triggering foods. So I think that there is a glutamate GABA thing going on in the brain. I think there is a, there are changes in the brain architecture that we can talk about, or at least in terms of the, the, um, the energy metabolism in the brain with ketogenic diet. I think that well, if you, um, want, if you want to add something there, I mean, feel free to go into it. Uh, I mean, we can maybe get into it later if we decide to talk about the mechanisms and the benefits sure. of it at like a molecular level, but yeah, I think they're beneficial there. The one nuance that I would bring up here is that, and this is interesting, people often say that ketogenic diets mimic fasting physiology, but I'm not sure they mimic fasting physiology completely because we are getting no, calories. Yeah. We are getting calories, right? Mm -hmm. So we'll probably get into this a little bit, but it's, you know, I did a podcast with David Sinclair. It was really interesting. 
I talked to him about this. He's a big NAD guy and interested in the mechanisms of NAD and NADH ratios and triggering of certain genes, which we'll probably get into the sirtuins, PARP, FOXO, MT2, metallothionine 2, et cetera. But he, he sort of thought that ketogenic diets were tricking the body into thinking that it was fasting. And I thought, yeah, it's probably kind of like that. But because we're getting calories, we're not totally fasting. So what's interesting, and you can let me know how you think of this or what you think about this, in a fasting state, the ATP to ADP ratio and ADP to AMP ratios are going to be lowered because we have low calories. Agreed. And, and the NAD to NADH ratios change in favor of NAD. So that, that NAD tends to go up, at least in the Agreed. cytosolic pool of NAD with fasting. But in a ketogenic state, with calories, it seems to be a little different. It's like you get, the, you get the increased NAD to NADH ratio, but you don't have low ATP to ADP because you have calories and you don't get ADP to AMP. So it's a little Wait bit Wait a second. Of, Can you say that one more time? How are you distinguishing between the effect on NADH versus ATP? Because you have adequate calories. So the, oh, in the ketogenic, in the ketogenic state. In, the ketogen, in a ketogenic diet, if you're feeding in someone as opposed diet, to yeah. fasting, yes. And there, there are, and I think we've seen that, you know, that, that there are differences. What, between, so can you run over one more time what you said about NADH? Oh, just that in, in, in a ketogenic diet, there's good mm -hmm. evidence that NAD to NADH ratios increase. And that's been documented. We can go over that data if you'd like to review that. Where? And, but where are, are you talking about in the liver? Or are you talking about in the brain? Uh, both. I think that's mostly been studied in the brain. Okay. But I think it would happen in both. Um, because I think that the mechanism would be the same uh, with the metabolism of beta-hydroxybutyrate versus glucose. But I don't think that ATP to ADP ratios would change in the same way that they do when you're fasting because you're not necessarily in a caloric deficit, right? So we have energy, we're doing metabolism, but so it's, in that way, I think it's uniquely different than fasting, right? Because in a fasting, you're getting all these signals. You're getting ADP, ATP to ADP ratios going down, ADP to AMP ratios going down and in ketogenic or ketogenic diets, because you're feeding someone, I think there's going to be a discordance there, right? NAD to NADH ratios. I'm, I'm 90, I'm 95% agreed with you. I would need to look more at the research on the NAD and NADH stuff to understand it better. But I agree, I agree with you that with the principle that there's a partial replication of the, um, of the fasting physiology. That's not yeah. complete because of the calories and the ATP. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting that it's only partial and the, the discordance well, that's, the part, there, that's why it doesn't kill you. Well, yeah, exactly. That's why it doesn't kill you. Do you want to, do you want to review some of the, the NAD, NADH stuff? It's quite interesting. Um, so there's a great paper. We can, I mean, I, there's a great paper on this. Uh, it gets into kind of the weeds in terms of, um, uh, some of the biochemistry, but we can, we can talk about it. So this can paper, you, can you chat me a link to it so I can look at it? Yeah. At well, time. do you want to, do you want to pause the video for a moment so we can do this or we can just cut out? So it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I had to kind of puzzle over this myself, but the idea, the paper is called beta hydroxybutyrate as a signaling metabolite is that fewer NAD molecules are consumed per acetyl-CoA when beta hydroxybutyrate is used versus when glucose is used. And the cellular compartment in which NAD is consumed is different. So this is why the NAD to NADH ratio changes during ketogenic physiology rather than glucose-based physiology. And this has been documented in the brain and like multiple other studies. 
both with M MRI and um, other methods, I believe both in humans and definitely both in humans and in animal models. But in the paper, they say that metabolism of one molecule of glucose, two molecules of acetyl-CoA involves the conversion of four molecules of NAD into NADH. Two of these molecules are converted in the cytosol during glycolysis. The other two are converted in the mitochondrion by pyruvate carboxylase. The cytosolic NADH is shuttled into the mitochondria, potentially depleting the cytoplasmic NAD pool with high glucose utilization. In contrast, when you use beta-hydroxybutyrate and the same two molecules of acetyl-CoA, um, only two molecules of NAD into NADH are used, and both uh, in the mitochondria and um, both are used in the mitochondria by an enzyme called BDH1, preserving the cytoplasmic NAD pool. So the cytoplasmic and mitochondrial NAD pools are distinct, and the preservation of cytoplasmic NAD by beta-hydroxybutyrate appears to have important cellular effects, which is kind of getting ahead of where we were going to be in this discussion as NAD is a cofactor for the sirtuins. Parks. Right, okay, so they're saying beta-hydroxybutyrate is going to reduce um, NAD to NADH, but because it can be done in the mitochondria, it can preserve the cytosolic NAD pool. It has to do with, yeah, it, it uses less and that's, NAD. And that's analogous to why you would make lactate in the cytosol, which yeah. is to restore the NAD levels in the cytosol. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, so real quick, the way that I would view that is that ketones in a ketogenic state, you're preserving cytosolic NAD with beta-hydroxybutyrate. In a normal glucose-based state on a mixed diet, you're primarily preserving cytosolic NAD by lactate production. Although, although lactate production is largely happening in astrocytes, so I guess if beta-hydroxybutyrate is being metabolized in the neuron, that would perhaps create a more effective NAD uh, rescuing effect in the cytosol of the neuron. That makes sense. Yeah, so the two studies, ketogenic diet modulates NAD-dependent enzymes and reduces DNA damage in the hippocampus. We can talk about that one eventually, and then the other one is... Um, so what's, I mean, what's the, what's the uh, sort of sales point here that the NAD is used for NAD hydrolyzing enzymes? Yes. Like sirtuins. And sirtuins, parts, metallothionine um, enzymes, and others. Uh, and, that, and that, I think, is, is the... And they, this has been documented as well that those enzymes do get turned on by ketosis and beta hydroxybutyrate. It's sort of an epigenetic mechanism, and you know, turning on longevity genes, FOXO3, sirtuins, etc. So it's pretty interesting, and it, that's a fair point. Yeah, and but and I think what's interesting about that is that you have enough energy, so you have ATP to ADP ratios that are maintained because you have energy, but in a way, you're sort of tricking the body into thinking that you're in a fasting state and turning on these longevity genes. So that's getting ahead of our conversation where we are at this point, but that's just well, a nuance. Well, I, I, no, I think it can segue into, into one of the points that I wanted to talk about here. And so I think that makes sense. And I think it makes sense specifically that you'd be doing that in ketone utilizing tissues. And so specifically, you're talking about doing that in the brain um, maybe to a lesser extent, you're talking about doing that in muscle and fat. You're not talking about doing that in the liver, which is, you know, on a ketogenic diet, the liver is bearing the brunt of metabolism to a greater degree than otherwise, because the liver is making all the ketones from fatty sure. acids. Sure. And the liver physiology, uh, be because beta oxidation is taking place there, and because ketones are being produced rather than utilized, basically has the opposite physiology of the, of the brain 
and other ketone utilizing tissues. So I, I, I do think that, and actually this, this is very interesting because one of the, one of the groups that was showing um, how oxidative stress is prevented in the hippocampus on a ketogenic diet showed that antioxidant status was worse in the liver. And so to, to a very large degree, the liver is bearing the brunt of transferring beneficial effects to other tissues, such as these effects that you're talking about in ketone utilizing tissues. In that, um, study, in that study, what was the length of time? Because I think that as we get into this discussion of ketogenesis, one of the themes that I seem to see as we were kind of reviewing studies in tandem was that the acute phase of transition into a ketogenic diet, and we, I think we need to be very careful, like you said, with semantics and differentiate a ketogenic diet from fasting physiology. Um, but as we transition into a ketogenic diet, there are, there are changes, and this is sort of the foreshadowing of the things we're going to talk about. There are changes in hormones and pH levels, which um, based on what I was looking at the studies, you may disagree with this, tend to be transient and resolve within a few weeks going back to normal levels. And so um, interestingly, as you've pointed out, and even in the brain, this has been shown in the hippocampus of rats, when we shift to a ketogenic diet, we are pushing more metabolism through the mitochondria, through the mitochondrial electron transport chain, and there are more reactive oxygen species created. And this has kind of been termed mitohormesis, the increase in reactive oxygen species in the mitochondria, in the brain, and perhaps other places in the body result in activation of mitochondrial biogenesis, PGC1-alpha pathways, FOXO3, and um, glutathione peroxidase, and increased enzymes to make more glutathione. And so after time, so there's that increase, that bump in reactive oxygen formation with the first transition into ketogenic physiology as more of the mitochondrial electron transport chain is used. And then the body corrects it, and there's more of these uh, antioxidant mechanisms, these endogenous antioxidant mechanisms turned on. And so the time frame of that is very important. If we look at the response to ketogenic physiology. Yeah, I, I, I can answer your question about the time frame. Um, so this, this group, uh, unfortunately, um, my Chrome <laughs> browser that had all these tabs open uh, quit and I'm restoring it now. Um, but this, this group um, showed that there was a time course where signs of oxidative stress in the hippocampus increased um, up to, I believe, the three-day point. Right. In three weeks, they looked better. Exactly. Um, however, however, um, what they showed in their study was essentially that the hormetic stress was yielding, if we consider three weeks long-term, and you know, it's, it's a rat study, so we can't go that long. Um, over the course of those three weeks, the short-term effect in the hippocampus was more oxidative stress that then activated the endogenous responses to that oxidative stress, produced a hormetic effect that led to protection from oxidative stress. Right. However, in the liver, the glutathione remained depleted through the three-week time point. It wasn't statistically significantly different at three weeks versus two weeks, but it looked to me like it was even lower. Um, no sign of it reversing course. And their measures of oxidative damage were actually conflicting in those tissues. But the general image that I get there is that um, the hippocampus benefited at the expense of the liver, and the hippocampus benefited specifically through hormetic stress. So this ketogenic diet is essentially 
um, mildly pro-oxidant in terms of the balance between oxidative stress and, and um, uh, antioxidant protection. In the hippocampus, the ketogenic diet is a mild oxidative stress that induces protective responses that we can call hormetic because the protective response exceeds any harm done by the mild stress. In the liver, that was not the case. Um, and uh, if I, I, I could share these data if, the, um, if this ever loads, but in any case, the, the glutathione remained depleted and the HNE, which is a marker of oxidative damage, remained elevated in the liver. In the liver of the mice, it's yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, I would, I, I think that it's, um, I think the oxidative stress is coming from increased utilization of the electron transport chain. Uh, and I think that the long-term effects are that it no longer is an oxidative stress because of the way that the reactive oxygen species are managed long-term. And so in the short term, I think there's an increase, but long-term, there's no increase in reactive oxygen species, and there's actually usually a decrease in reactive oxygen species, at least in the brain. I would love to see people check this in the liver in but humans. The, but the, yeah, the, the liver, so the liver is, is in many ways different from the brain in the case of a ketogenic diet. So one of the benefits of ketones that is cited by Veach is that ketones increase um, they increase the amount of NADH in the mitochondrion versus the amount of FADH2. And so the way that works in the electron transport chain favors less generation of reactive oxygen species. Um, but Veach also points out that um, in fatty acid oxidation, you're doing the opposite. So fatty acid oxidation is occurring in the liver, not the brain primarily in a ketogenic diet. In the liver, fatty acid is actually generating more FADH2 than you would have uh, and less NADH than you would have if you were burning glucose. And so you're essentially transferring the, the mitochondrial NADH to FADH2 ratio. You're basically giving that benefit to the brain, but the liver is bearing responsibility to create that benefit. The liver has to balance the accounts. I mean, the liver does this all the time. Like the muscle makes lactate, liver takes it, turns it back to glucose, sends it back there. Like the, the, when the liver is handling metabolism for the rest of the body, if you get a benefit one place, the liver is suffering. Like in the, la in the Cori cycle, muscles are making glucose. The liver is getting depleted of ATP to make that glucose send back to the muscle. In ketogenesis, the liver is bearing the brunt of dealing with all the fatty acid oxidation. The fatty acid oxidation is going to be upregulating uncoupling proteins in the liver, which decrease mitochondrial efficiency. Ketones are going to be increasing mitochondrial efficiency in the brain at the expense of the liver. Uh, fatty acid oxidation is generating NADH, reducing FADH2. Ketones get sent to the brain, taking NADH reduction from the liver, giving it to the brain, reversing that metabolism in the brain. So the liver really is, like the brain is benefiting, but it is at, is at the expense of the stress uh, put on the liver. What's interesting, I think that then we have to look and say, what's the net, right? Is there a way that we can clinically look at the liver? And, you know, what's interesting is that from, a, from that perspective, I we do not see evidence of oxidative stress in the liver on a ketogenic diet. So in theory, this is what's happening. And I don't see elevated GGT, AST, ALT, or other markers of oxidative stress in the liver in humans on a ketogenic diet long-term. So we kind of have to say what's going on. And then as we've seen in animal models, we obviously can't study this very well in humans. The ketogenic diet is lifespan expending. 
extended. You know, it's, it's mimicking caloric restriction and turning on these longevity genes. So I, I, I want to dwell on that point because I want to, I want to, you brought it up before and, and I'll let you finish your thought, but I want to hover there for a minute. Cause I do want to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, so, um, it seems to mimic the ketogenic diet seems to mimic the caloric restriction physiology in its epigenetic effects. So beta hydroxybutyrate has direct effects on the histone deacetylases, HDAX one and two, and the NAD to NADH ratios can affect the differential transcription of genes, FOXO3, sirtuins, MT2, the PARPs, and it appears to have a lifespan extending effect in animal models, much like interventions which affect sirtuins do. So this is the work of David Sinclair and others with resveratrol and other molecules that affect the NAD to NADH ratio. So clinical evidence that the liver is stressed by a ketogenic diet are, I've not seen it in humans. Um, well, look, I'm not saying that the, that the liver is being um, acutely damaged by a ketogenic diet, but we're talking about, um, we're talking about oxidative stress benefits in the hippocampus, and we're relying on animal experiments to talk about those things. I mean, you're not also measuring oxidative stress in the hippocampus of your patients either, right? We can't, but so, so we, are... we only we only understand these mechanistic details from animal experiments, and the hippo the people who did the hippocampus paper are the people that I'm that I'm citing for this. So after they published their paper in nineteen or in two thousand eight, I believe it was, they published another paper in uh, in two thousand ten, acute oxidative stress and systemic nerf two activation by the ketogenic diet, and that's where they mapped out the time course of reactive oxygen species. So H2O2 was increased at one day in the, by the ketogenic diet, um, declined thereafter, and was significantly lower than baseline at three weeks. The 4-HNE, which is a marker of oxidative damage, was elevated at three days, and it wasn't statistically significantly elevated at one and three weeks, but it actually looks pretty much just as high, so that didn't seem to benefit in the same way. Maybe that was early damage that from the is, day one or three that persisted. But in the liver, liver or, oh, no, that's, is, in, that's in hippocampus. Oh, that's and then cool. in the liver, the glutathione was cut in half in the liver at three days, stayed cut in half at one week and three weeks. In fact, at three weeks, it looks even worse than it did at three days. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean... We're not measuring hepatic glutathione in anyone's patients. We're not measuring hippocampal 4-HNE. We're not measuring hippocampal H2O2, right? So, I mean, I think it's very clear that there's neuro, neurological and psychiatric benefit. Um, my personal my personal way of seeing that is that that's mainly from the glutamate GABA balance. I think these things on oxidative stress are very not fully mapped out yet, but I think if we're going to go into details about affecting NAD um, FADH2 and all these different things. We, I think it's necessary to point out that in proportion to the, the benefits that incur at the brain, those you're directly proportionally having the reverse effect in the liver. And I think that then we, you know, as people who work with people, humans, we can sort of say, that's an interesting, okay, how do we measure that in the liver? You know, how do we test that? And the best proxy that I have for that is AST, ALT, GGT, systemic markers of inflammation, things like this. And I haven't seen an issue with it, but it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, it's like, huh. Um, 
certainly we know there are cognitive benefits to a ketogenic yeah, diet. But your patients aren't also, they're not that ketogenic, right? For the most part. I mean, what's the typical millimolar yeah, ketone? I think it's probably mile, 0.5, right? 0. 0.5 to 1.5. So, yeah. I mean, I, I eat whatever I usually eat. I don't eat keto at all, but mine are 0. 0.2 on a typical afternoon. Yeah. Um, so, 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 uh, but I want to, I want to hover on, on the concept of longevity effects here. So, I, I'll say at the outset that I'm, I'm generally, no matter what, whether it's fasting, keto, resveratrol, or whatever, um, I'm not too big on looking at net lifespan in animals on the basis that, uh, on the basis that um, certainly in worms, uh, I just think their physiology is so much different from ours. Um, but even in like mice, uh, I don't think that looking at, if you put a mouse in a very protected environment and let it live off its natural life, protected from germs, protected from nutrient deficiencies, protected from trauma. I don't think that has much of a parallel to, um, you know, the typical American dying of, you know, getting sarcopenia, osteoporosis, uh, hip fractures, cardiovascular disease, and stroke. Um, you know, I do think that the average rat uh, like winds up getting testicular cancer or something like that. Um, so, I mean, I, I just I think that it, it just makes much more sense to look at disease specific models rather than that longevity. But I want to take this back to um, a more conceptual level. So, we agree that ketones are partial fasting state, partial replication of the fasting state physiology. <laughs> And it's one that allows us to continue the fasting state physiology that, um, that for a much longer period of time than fasting. And I think I'll, I'll agree with you on the point that you made about the NAT plus conservation in cytosolic um, uh, ketone utilizing tissues. And I agree that's going to be beneficial from the perspective of PARPs and sirtuins, which are involved in um, DNA repair and telomere, telomere lengthening and other factors related to longevity. However, uh, the fasting state physiology, in my view, is something that you want to cycle in and out of. It's not something that you want to remain in perpetually all the time. And the reason is that there are many aspects of uh, health protective factors that are, um, that are primarily happening in fed state physiology. And we alternate between different ones. So, for example, autophagy is generally associated with fasting state physiology. Um, but antioxidant protection and, uh, and repair processes, glycation protection, are generally energy-intensive processes that are more regulated by the fed state. And so, as an example, and there's multiple pathways regulating this. One of them is that citrate increases in the cytosol in the fed state, particularly in a robust carbohydrate fed state, and increases acetylation in the nucleus, which turns on genes related to antioxidant defense. But also insulin has direct effects in glutathione synthesis and has direct, direct effects in regulating um, enzymes involved in particularly glycation defense. But through glutathione synthesis is also extremely important to antioxidant protection. Um, and so I think, you know, if you look at um, that hippocampus paper, the depletion of glutathione that occurs in the liver is a significant example of that. And glutathione depletion, 
I don't know anyone. I, I looked for papers and could not find any on ketogenic diets in humans and, and hepatic glutathione or even plasma glutathione and could not find any. Um, but uh, it's generally known and non-controversial that glutathione cycles down in the fasting state and up in the fed state. And that's basically for two reasons. One is that protein provides all the precursors. So the influx of amino acids from protein is high in the fed state, low in the fasting state. And the other is that the synthesis of glutathione requires insulin, magnesium, and ATP. So insulin is a direct positive regulator of glutathione synthesis. The insulin to glucagon ratio is what drives that. And that partly reflects, I think, that it, that it is ATP intensive. So in a ketogenic diet with adequate protein, you are providing amino acids. You are providing ATP levels. You're not providing the insulin response. Well, I think that's why glutathione levels are lower as, for an example, in the livers of those mice or rats rather. So th I would, that, that's a, an important thing to distinguish here. And maybe that's why I wanted to say that in the beginning, that, that a ketogenic diet is not the same physiology as a fasted state, right? Because you do have influx of amino acids and you do have ATP. And I think sure. that that is going to change the overall signaling. And that's, as you say, I don't know that that's fully been studied. And I think that a ketogenic diet represents a unique physiology. I agree with you. When we are completely fasting for a week, things are going to be different, right? And antioxidant status could decline with all those mechanisms. But um, in, in a ketogenic diet, it's kind of this unique thing that we need to study a little more because of the discordance between ATP levels and NAD levels. One of them mimics fasting, one of them doesn't. And I think that's going to affect things differently. The other just part that I would suggest here is that absolute levels of insulin do not directly translate into levels of insulin signaling. And I think that glucagon to insulin ratio is important, but the absolute level of insulin tells us nothing about insulin signaling. We know this from cases of insulin resistance. And postprandial insulin levels on any diet, even a diet that involves protein in a carnivore diet, will rise. So there are insulin signals. Fasting insulin levels are much lower. And I was actually looking at a paper the other day with a friend and we were comparing postprandial levels of insulin signaling uh, on, on uh, a number of people who were eating a carnivore diet. And then we were looking at another paper of, I think it was, um, I think they were non-diabetic subjects in postprandial insulin signaling. But uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence that I've seen about levels of postprandial insulin. But Insulin does rise after a meal of protein and fat. It, it still does. We know that protein is insulinogenic to some extent. It's not completely fat, flat. I don't, I don't, so I, I don't think we disagree on this at all. Um, and a ketogenic diet is going to provide signals of being in the fed state, but they're not going to be as robust as signals from a carbohydrate-inclusive diet. And I think that it, I think it's, I think it's misleading to point to insulin resistance in, the, in, in pointing out why more insulin is not necessarily going to make more, more insulin signaling. I mean, it's true that in an insulin-resistant person, they're going to have higher insulin levels and less insulin signaling. That's completely true. Um, but, it is, um, but it is also true that if you take anyone with a given level of insulin resistance and you feed them carbohydrate, you're going to get more insulin and given the state of the current state of resistance or sensitivity to their cells, they're going to have more insulin signaling because of that. Um, I think that's completely non-controversial. Also, if you look at diabetics, and I can link this paper in the show notes, I can send it to you later. Um, but uh, 
and this is, I believe I cited this in my doctoral dissertation, which I sent you. There was a study on diabetics showing that they have low glutathione status, including an oxidized glutathione uh, status in the blood, and that you could normalize that by putting them on a euglycemic hyperinsulinemic clamp. This is a model where they, they took human diabetics, looked at their bad glutathione status, and they pumped glucose and insulin simultaneously in, in their blood and did so in a way that allowed them to pump just enough glucose to prevent, hyper, to prevent hypoglycemia while simultaneously putting in very large loads of insulin. And what that did was normalize their glutathione status. Um, so there is human evidence that insulin, even in the context of being pumped full of glucose, even in the context of diabetes, insulin does positively regulate glutathione in a way that increases it, um, which is consistent with the, the livers of the rats that were fed the ketogenic diet as well. Um, so, I mean, I, I think we're in complete agreement that uh, you do not have a full replication of the fasting physiology in a ketogenic diet. You do get fed state signals. I just don't think, I mean, ketogenic diets were explicitly designed by the Mayo Clinic for the purpose of creating a sustainable mimic of fasting state physiology for the, for the, for the purpose of treating seizures, because it was known that seizures could be treated by fasting, but it was also known that you can't fast it perpetually or you die. And so, Yes, they provide fed state signals, but they were literally designed to try to maximize the fasting state physiology that you could get out of a diet that would keep you alive over time. And I think a, a good model for understanding um, the concept of cycling is basically when you fast, you do things, you do you primarily do things that break things down and that are energy generating. And that allows you to clean house. Um, when you get fed, you do a lot of building up, you do a lot of repairing, and you do a lot of energy-intensive pr protection. And I think we need to harness both of those to optimize, um, to optimize our physiology for long-term protection. That's my view. I think, it's a, I think that's, a, that's a compelling thesis. That's a compelling premise. And I think that it's not totally clear that we can't do that with ketogenic diets. And I think that with ketogenic diets, what I'm saying now is that the other nuance we should say is that a four to one fat to protein ketogenic diet developed by the Mayo Clinic for epilepsy is perhaps different physiologically than a 150 to 170 gram of protein one to one or two to one fat to protein ratio that we would be getting on a diet like this. I think that an extreme, sure. extreme dietary ketosis may have different signals. And I appreciate what you're saying. I think that we do want to make sure that no matter how we're eating, whatever sort of macronutrient composition we are consuming, we are still getting anabolic signals. And I think it's fascinating, and, it, and there's a, a good amount of data to suggest that we can still get that on a diet that is ketogenic. It's maybe not the classical ketogenic diet, but we can still get that on something like a carnivore diet. With regard to the oxidative stress stuff, I think that we talked about this a little bit in the first podcast. I ha we need more studies on this, but I haven't seen clinically any change in lipid peroxides, 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, levels of glutathione in myself or my patients on carnivore diets. And so the actual rubber meets the road 
translation of all this to me suggests that that people can have quite good, at least the best metrics that I'm aware of, of oxidative stress, um, even on this way of eating. And so it's hard to know how those two sort of things connect. You know, I don't, we don't observe it, uh, or at least I have not observed it in my patients, but it's something we could test for. And I wonder about that. Now I'm testing whole blood. It would be something great to, to do a study on when the first carnivore studies are done. I know, right? It, I've got a feeling that will not be in the first carnivore study, but maybe the no? third. That's okay. a little, maybe I, I'm pretty sure in the first carnivore study. I'll, we'll, I'll lobby for it. We'll, we'll just be looking at like blood pressure and A1C or something basic, uh, making sure it doesn't kill people when they're in the hospital. Um, okay. Study number two on the carnivore diet. Study number look, two. Look at oxidative stress. Oxidative stress, hepatic glutathione, serum levels of glutathione. And in, a, and in a study, like we talked about before, in a, in a research study, you'd be, you'd be able to get the best measures because you'd be able to look at the redox status of the glutathione, how oxidized it was in the blood. Yeah, oxidized to reduce glutathione, F2 isoprostanes, whatever we, yeah. whatever, whatever we think is going to be valuable. So maybe, we're, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, maybe we should, I mean, maybe we could circle. I know we've gone almost two hours already. I mean, just, I think as an illustration of some of these concepts about ketogenic diets, perhaps we should talk a little bit about the hormones. I mean, sure. Uh, yeah, I think that, I think that the, the studies from, um, Volek and, um, Zajak, that we talked about previously that did not show significantly different changes in sex hormones um, might argue that, you know, there's still, there's still plenty of anabolic signaling going on. You know, I think that if, if ketogenic physiology, if a ketogenic diet, now, of course, these people are doing slightly different ketogenic diets, not using a carnivore diet. It, this, it doesn't seem to mimic fasting physiology in terms of hormones either. Um, from what I've heard observed in people who are doing long fasts, the testosterone just plummets. Uh, you know, all of the things associated with anabolic signals plummet. You can see IGF-1 plummet. And, and we don't see this in many of the ketogenic studies that, that we reviewed. I mean, um, in a number of those studies, IGF-1 didn't change, testosterone didn't change, other sex hormones didn't change, leptin seems to be sometimes goes down, sometimes is the same, depending on the study you look at. But I see that as an, as an argument that, hey, look, there's still, there's still anabolic signals. And I think that that's the question is, or at least the, the hypothesis that eating a ketogenic diet doesn't mimic fasting completely. I agree with you completely with regard to fasting. When you fast, there's all these low energy signals. But I'm fascinated by this, this discordance of the ketogenic diet between the ATP energy signal and NAD and the hormonal data to me suggests we're still, we're not, we're not fully fasting physiology. We're not just dropping everything off the face of the planet. I think part of the issue here is, is first of all, I'm thinking of this more from the perspective of possibilities um, rather than mean effects. And some of these studies are looking at mean effects. And the, another part of it is that um, there's so many different permutations of how ketogenic a ketogenic diet is and how low in carbohydrate is a low carbohydrate diet. Um, and so, uh, I think that the, so I, I mean, I've talked to, for example, I talked to a type one diabetic who was managing his type one diabetes by eating a zero carb diet, his testosterone sex hormones just completely tanked. Um, 
when I look at that, I'm like, well, that's pretty predictable. Insulin has positive regulation of thyroid hormone, has positive regulation of sex hormones. If there are other people whose sex hormones are fine, well, it didn't happen to them. That's fine. And I think you're kind of, I think you're pretty well getting at the key point, which is how, to what degree are you mimicking the fasting state physiology? So we're taking a mild version of something that was designed to very largely mimic fasting state physiology. And you do a mild version that maybe 20% approximates fasting state physiology. You're probably at that point rescuing your, your, yourself from the fasting physiology effects of that. Um, the negative fasting physiology effects. Well, I guess in some well, all fasting physiology yeah. is 100% negative if carried out indefinitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no one fasts forever and doesn't die, right? Yeah. So, um, so, I mean, fasting state physiology is intrinsically lethal to carry out in perpetuity. Um, and so the, the, you know, the question is, uh, to what degree are you mimicking that? Well, I think if you're keeping thyroid hormones and sex hormones normal, then whether it's because of the saturated fat or the protein or other animal-based nutrients or, or the calories or however you're doing it, there's something that you're doing that is providing enough anabolic signal to maintain fed state physiology. And my perspective isn't really to come here and to say, don't do keto because it will tank your, it will tank your testosterone and it will throw your cortisol through the roof. But I would come and say, look, I, you know, I've had people call me up who say, you know, I eat 60 grams of carbs a day. I do CrossFit. I wake up in the middle of the night at 4 a.m. every day. My heart's pounding through the roof. I feel hypoglycemic. My instinct is to say, you know, maybe with your lifestyle, you need to eat more carbs. And maybe you would have a different approach to that. But I do think that in fasting state physiology, in glycogen depletion, you do hit a point, and this is natural textbook physiology, you do hit a point where you'll raise cortisol. You do hit a point where you'll raise adrenaline at some point. And so on a case-by-case basis, there should be an awareness that it's a potential product of excessive fasting state physiology to spike cortisol, to spike adrenaline, to tank testosterone, to tank thyroid hormone. And maybe if you do carnivore mild keto perfectly in a very well-planned diet, maybe no one gets that effect. But we don't really know how, you know, how much when we take a random sample of people who weren't specifically following that and we put them on, a, on that diet, then we'll know, you know what, in what percentage does this happen. But a lot of the studies that we're looking at are looking at means. And it's like, if you take the mild version of the diet, you put some people on it, the average, maybe the average cortisol isn't significantly different. That doesn't rule out that there are some people because of their constitution, their lifestyle, the rest of their diet, where if you activate too much fasting state physiology, you will get negative effects. And I think that that is perhaps the tipping point. When I see people and they're calorie restricting on a ketogenic diet, you can see the hormones change. But you can also see that change on a non-ketogenic diet if you're calorie restricting. And I think that my hypothesis is that that is a function of calorie restriction more than it is a function of a ketogenic diet. And that if you mimic fasting physiology with caloric restriction, you will get the effects of of fasting physiology you will get changes in the sex hormones. And if you see that, then you've crossed over the edge. And it's temporary. It's okay. If you want to fast, it'll come back. 
But if people are seeing that on a ketogenic diet, I do not think that is a feature that is intrinsic to a ketogenic diet because there are many studies which show that after the period of keto adaptation, three to six weeks, that most of the hormones, that the hormones look the same. And you mentioned cortisol and adrenaline, and the studies with that would suggest the same thing. If you look at people who are keto adapted, and we probably don't want to get in the weeds with all the studies that we were talking about before this podcast, but the way that I saw those studies that once people were keto adapted, that there was no clear data that cortisol either at rest or with exercise was higher or lower on a ketogenic diet. In the short term, yes, as you deplete liver glycogen, which is the signal for ketosis, there's going to be hormonal changes. But as we keto adapt, as we carnivore adapt, maybe is what I should call it from now on, we're going to carnivore adapt, it looks like those things normalize, whether we're looking at pH. You're talking about glycogen? Well, no, I'm not talking about glycogen. I'm talking about, well, right now I'm talking about hormones and indicators. So I'm talking about, you like how I said that, hormones. It was like I said it in French. Um, (laughs) So I'm talking about sex hormones, testosterone, cortisol, those type of things, pH. It seems to normalize once we become carnivore, keto adapted. In the short term, yeah, there are changes. But when people, I think people get misled by this concept that cortisol goes up on a ketogenic diet because it doesn't long-term in many of the studies that I've seen. In fact, the majority of the studies we looked at, it did not seem to be statistically significantly elevated on a low-carbohydrate diet long-term. In the short-term, yes, in the first few days. And it's because of the depletion of the liver glycogen, there are changes, and then the body adapts. And the same thing with pH. We talked about that a little bit as preparing for this podcast. The pH goes down a little bit in the beginning, but then the body buffers, and it looks to be about the same. It looks to be the same long-term. So in terms of studies that have looked at people who are keto adapted, I didn't see any that showed that there were real differences in hormones. And again, I think that you bring up the good nuance here, which is they're looking at means. And if you mimic fasting physiology, you will get changes in these things. And the way to mimic fasting physiology is to calorie restrict. And if you are getting adequate calories, I am not convinced that a ketogenic diet or a ketogenic physiology perhaps I'm referring to low-level ketogenic physiology on a carnivore diet, you know, is, is intrinsically going to create hormonal abnormalities. So I didn't comprehensively review the literature, and, um, uh, but, I, but I looked at a few studies and we shared a few studies. We can post all the studies that we shared in the show notes and, and people can take a look at these. Um, my impression was not so much that there was a time adaptation on cortisol. I thought it was more context-dependent. So in people on a ketogenic diet where they had an extreme uh, therapeutic ketogenic diet for epilepsy, where they obviously had health problems to begin with, in, and in people with rheumatoid arthritis, there were statistically significant increases in cortisol. But those are um, only two, three to seven days. Well, right. But I just don't, I didn't, I don't see the time course effect. In the Volek 2002 paper, the cortisol was like twice as high at baseline in one group than the other. And I just thought the cortisol data were too variable to be useful. Um, and then there was an exercise paper where, that we looked at, and it was, if I recall correctly, cortisol wasn't elevated at um, baseline, but it was elevated during the first 90 minutes of the exercise program. So to me, it, it looked No, more- you'd have to really, that one was really quite misleading, Chris. We'd have to really dig into that paper there wasn't a statistically significant difference in cortisol at any of the time points with the exercise in that paper. Okay. Well, let's, let's leave it at, uh, I don't think 
um, we can we can put the paper in the show notes, and then maybe we we can uh, talk about it later, answer questions about it, or or go back and forth later. But anyway, my impression is that it's more context dependent than time dependent. I if there's if there's time adaptation data, um, I don't know, maybe it's out there, but I, I didn't get that impression. Um, the time adaptation, I'll just, I'll just add that, that what I saw was that in some of the studies you sent that were short-term studies, right, three to seven days, there were some increases in cortisol. But many of those in the kids with ketogenic diets, the increase in cortisol was still within the normal range. And it wasn't... Pathogen- oh, I agree with that. Yeah, it was a bump, but it was, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it was still within the normal range. And again, this was only, you know, at seven days. And then if you look at the studies by Volek... Um, this is part of a group that's in a lot of studies on ketogenic diets. They, 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 often do the, they often do them in the setting of being people being keto adapted and give them two to three to four to five, six weeks. And those studies did not consistently show any difference. So your interpretation may be equally valid uh, as mine, but the other hypothesis is that there's part of a keto adaptation effect here. There, another- yeah, there, I think there might be a keto adaptation period, but I mean, it's, it's, there's most of the times when people are claiming keto adaptation, there's not, there's not very rigorously designed studies to test the idea. Um, one point I do want to make, uh, make about glycogen. So many people look at Volek's faster study as showing that when people are on ketogenic diets for seven, eight months in athletes, that glycogen metabolism is not any different than glycogen contents, not any different than muscles. But um, Finney published a paper in 1983 <coughs> showing that muscle glycogen was cut in half on a ketogenic diet. And Finney's study was shorter. It was a few weeks long. But Volek's keto dieters were also eating four times as much carbohydrate as Finney's were. So I think a lot of this comes down to, I mean, if you just think about the physiology, it makes more sense to me that, the, that it's going to be context dependent rather than, and yeah, there will be adaptations, of course, but Context has to be a powerful modulator. Cortisol is, um, you know, cortisol is part of a stress response. And so the other stressors are going to be part of the calculation of how the body is going to respond. Like hypoglycemia or not having, not being fed well enough is a stress. Hypochloric diets are a stress. So are many disease states. So are psychosocial stress. So I think my suspicion is that if we were able, and we're getting to suspicion, but my suspicion is that if we were able to test out all the variables in a very rigorous way, we would eventually create a picture where, yeah, there are adaptation periods, but there's also big contextual modifiers where if someone has a cumulative stress threshold from different, um, from, I mean, there's a lot of people out there who are dieting or doing keto at the same time or doing CrossFit who have a lot of psychosocial emotional stress. I think some people are just way overloaded on the on the stress fasting state physiology underfed side of things, um, and just way out of balance with the degree of rest and recovery that they have. And so I I just the way that I think about it is look, uh, carbohydrates provide a more robust fed state signal than other macronutrients do. All macronutrients provide a fed state signal, so your body's going to be looking at stress signals of how much energy do I need, and then fed state signals of how much energy do I have. And the relative balance of being understressed or overstressed, in my view, is going to be nourished by an amount of carbohydrate that um, provides a more robust fed state signal, but doesn't induce hyperglycemic stress, 
which I think we would probably agree is, a, is itself a stressor. And there's evidence for that as well. There's evidence in, in carbohydrate-based diet overfeeding that that creates inflammation and you know, evidence of oxidative stress. So we don't want to be overfed in the carbohydrate state either. I think that my counterpoint to you is that carbohydrates are, as you said, are not the only fed state signal. And I do not think the data clearly points to the notion that we need carbohydrates to get an adequate fed state signal. I like that we're talking about the fed state signal. I think the fed state signal is important. And the fed state signal is easily measured. It's, it's your testosterone, it's your cortisol, it's your estrogen, it's your you know, it's your um, insulin to glucagon ratio, ATP, well, I mean, NADH. I don't, know about, I don't know about insulin to glucagon ratio necessarily. Maybe. I mean, it's going to be close to one. That's, that's the single most classical textbook index of the fed state versus fasting state is the insulin to glucagon ratio. A postprandial insulin glucagon ratio or a fasting insulin glucagon ratio? Postprandial. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, postprandial is the fed state. Fasting is fasting state. Yeah. 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 Um, but I think you yeah, can see so I, those things. Sorry, I think you can see those things change when people limit calories too much on these type of diets. I do not think carbohydrates are a unique fed state signal. I don't think we need them to be in the fed state. I, I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah. So I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah. And I mean, maybe we should talk. I, I wanted to comment a little bit about the faster study as well, but um, I didn't know. Well, well let, let's, let me just state that I think we're in a complete agreement that carbohydrates are not a unique fed state signal. My position is simply that they're a more robust fed state signal. And I think it's anecdotally, I think you make a compelling case that you can have adequate fed state physiology on a carnivore, mildly keto diet. Um, I think we just need to, I think it's worthy of study where that threshold is and what are the contextual things that modify that. And it's worth keeping in mind that when we come across someone who maybe doesn't do that well on carbohydrate restriction, that that less robust fed state signal might be why. Not to say that there aren't other contextual things to look at, like are you getting enough calories, but I just think carbohydrates are one of the things to look at in that calculation. Absolutely, absolutely. But um, so let's let's. You wanted to talk about the faster study. Um, I do want to talk about you want you also want to talk about last time. So I want to make sure we do talk about the acidosis issue, and then let's wrap up with final thoughts. <laughs> this is going to be a long one, Chris. Uh, no, we, we'll, uh, we'll, go, we'll go quickly through these last we'll go quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the FASTER study, they had 10% carbohydrate in the diet. And it was, and I mean, it's, it's an intriguing study that I would encourage people to look at. It's metabolic characteristics of keto-adapted ultra-endurance runners. And there was equivalent glycogen storage and utilization on this diet when they were at 10% carbohydrate um, for a period of keto-adaptation. The other it, was thing, a, it was a very low carbohydrate diet. It was just four times higher in carbohydrate than the Finney 1983 studies showing that glycogen in the muscles was cut in half. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I just dispute that you can say that that's keto adaptation over months rather than less extreme carbohydrate restriction. You wonder. You got to wonder, yeah? I don't know. <laughs> we got to compare the study. We got to look at my muscle glycogen. Um, there okay. are a couple of um, quite interesting studies looking at performance in ketogenic mm -hmm. diets. Um, I can uh, send these to you. Keto, keto adaptation enhances exercise performance and body composition responses to training and endurance athletes is the first one. Um, and I got to look and see how ketogenic this one was. But this was a 12-week ketogenic diet, and the low-carbohydrate uh, ketogenic diet group had significantly greater decrease in body mass and body fat percentage and they had no change in the 100-kilometer time trial between that group and the high-carb group 
no change in the six-second sprint peak power, or actually the, the ketogenic group, the low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet increased their six-second peak power by eight watts per kilogram body weight, and the high-carbohydrate group dropped negative uh, 0.1 watt per kilogram. And then the, um, the last measure was the critical power test. The peak power uh, decreased by 0.7 watts per kilogram, and the high-carb group increased by 1.4 watts per kilogram in the low-carb ketogenic group. So that was, and again, it was 12 weeks of keto adaptation. And I, um, this group had, uh, 6% carbohydrates, 17% protein, 77% fat. So pretty, I mean, pretty interesting in terms of performance. There's another one effects of four week, very low carbohydrate diet on high intensity interval training responses. Um, this one was, uh, eight plus or minus 3% carbohydrates in the low carb ketogenic diet group. And they had, uh, they performed graded high intensity exercises. And basically in summary, there was, there was no difference between those groups after, um, uh, a period of two to four weeks of keto adaptation. So in terms of performance, those studies are, are intriguing for ketogenic diets. People always say, oh, you can't do these things on a ketogenic diet. And I, I, I really think it's fascinating. This question of muscle glycogen stores on a ketogenic diet are fascinating. Again, I just did a podcast with Stan Efferding and um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, like if on carnivore macros, what if you're doing zero carbohydrate, but you're getting, you know, lots of, you're getting a, a robust amount of protein. Will that increase glycogen stores in the muscle? Uh, who knows? But at least there's some evidence that with, with, with six and 9% carbohydrates, the performance was equivalent after keto adaptation. Yeah, I think uh, protein is super important here. I mean, so you, you, you recommend what is a higher than average amount of protein oh, in yeah. the diet. And um, I, I don't, I don't want to go into all the details of the studies because I did, um, and we can, we can post this in the show note. I, I did uh, a review of the, of the evidence in a, um, in a, uh, a master class of Master John Energy Metabolism episode that took me like over an hour to go through the details of the studies. So um, I think that uh, I, I, just, I just don't want to go into that level of, of detail on the topic. I think we're in agreement that you can get good sports performance on a ketogenic diet. I don't think that's very questionable. Um, I think in principle, you must have uh, saturated muscular glycogen stores to be able to go at peak intensity for the longest. And you raise an important question here. And I, and I made this point too before that the degree of carbohydrate restriction and the amount of protein in the diet are going to be key in determining how much muscle glycogen is repleted. So I think if we really want to answer this, we have to be, we have to ferret out, um, the methods in measuring whether you're getting to the highest intensity and people have used different um, methods around that. You have to ferret out this idea around keto adaptation. I mean, you and I still can't come to agreement precisely because there's not enough data on it. Whether Finney 1983 and Bullock's faster study are different in muscle glycogen because of time of adaptation versus amount of carbohydrate in the diet. Um, so I think that the evidence indicates that uh, you can get good sports performance on a ketogenic diet. I think the physiology indicates that you cannot get maximum intensity unless 
your diet in some way is maximizing your muscle glycogen stores. Um, it's just physiological fact that peak intensity will require um, that you that you use anaerobic glycolysis. Um, it's hard to measure peak intensity in a study because you have to provide adequate incentive to outcompete the other person in order to get there. That's hard. Um, but we also have to look at things like muscular glycogen content. What's the threshold of carbohydrate restriction slash how does protein compensate when determining that? And I just think that the studies are right now kind of a mess. I think they vaguely support the idea that if you do the model right, peak intensity requires carbohydrate, but um, there's just too many unanswered questions and none of them are, you know, if you fall into the camp of like, it takes a couple months to keto adapt, keto adapt, then no one has done that. Those kinds of studies, unless you count Bullock's observational study, the faster study. Um, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to leave my position at that. Yeah. And I mean, it's not, I think that right now it's kind of just an academic question. I don't have, I don't have a bias against carbohydrates per se. I just, personally have found that I feel mentally much more clear when I exclude them. Um, and I don't see a necessity for them in my diet. And, you know, a nose to tail carnivore diet doesn't have carbohydrates. So we have these types of academic, you know, you know, uh, you know, curious meanderings together. Uh, but I don't, I don't have a problem with carbohydrates. If people are kicking ass and, and loving their carbohydrates and using carbohydrates as a fed seed signal, to increase their muscle glycogen. I think that's awesome. And I also want people to know that, that there appears to be some compelling evidence that we may not need them um, to achieve these levels of muscle glycogen and peak performance should we, should we construct a diet well. But I, I, I appreciate so much that you're putting the contextual perspective on this because I do think that if we don't get enough protein, it's likely we won't have enough muscle glycogen. And yeah. Would, well, I, I agree with that on protein for sure. Um, speaking of academic curiosities, one of the things that you wanted to talk about in part one that we never got to, and we're still saving for last now, is the Inuit and why they have their genetic oh, impairment in ketogenesis. Do we have time for um, this? <laughs> I, th I think if we do, I think we can do it in five or 10 minutes. Uh, I don't think we need to debate every detail, but I, I think we can lay out the, the basic positions. So I, I did this video uh, back in 2017, I think, where I argued that the Inuit have a CPT1, uh, CPT1A defect, which specifically prevents fatty acids from entering the mitochondria in the liver, but not in other tissues, and thereby specifically prevents ketogenesis. Um, I argued that that was um, a, it, the reason why and this, by the way, is a metabolic disorder. It causes, uh, it can, it can in some infants cause uh, and children seizures in response to fasting. It is associated with infant mortality in terms of homozygosity, and it does when homozygous, it does dramatically increase the risk of hypoketotic hypoglycemia during fasting, which is where you don't produce ketones or enough blood sugar, and so the brain starves which can lead to hypoglycemic symptoms and uh, including uh, seizures, coma, and death. And so the presence of this allele that blocks hepatic beta oxidation, therefore ketone production, basically achieved near, nearly universal prevalence in the Arctic. And my rationale for this was that 
ketogenesis provides acid stress that when there are enough um, other stressors can lead to clinical uh, acidosis. And um, so a few things to go along with that. There are case reports of people <laughs> developing, and I know you, you have some criticisms of these. There are case reports of people uh, developing ketoacidosis from fasting during lactation, a couple people on low-carbohydrate diets, and of course, there's a well-known alcoholic ketoacidosis. In the case of the Arctic, um, the Arctic environment appears to have created um, pro- what we would expect to be prob- other problems in dealing with acid base balance in the Inuit. In particular, most humans will spare their nervous system at the expense of their bones by leaching calcium out of their bones to provide calcium to the brain. The Inuit appear to have uh, adaptations that lower parathyroid hormone to prevent bone resorption and have much better bones and teeth as a result of this, but are much more vulnerable to hypocalcemic tetany. And one argument for why this occurred was that the Arctic environment is so physically demanding and harsh that the Inuit um, would be would benefit by sparing their bones even at the expense of hypocalcemic tetany. It happens to be the case that one of the key responses to acidosis is to take bicarbonate out of the bones. That's part of the acidosis, uh, part of compensation for acidosis. Part of it is to pee out the acids. Part of it is to breathe out carbon dioxide. Part of it is to take bicarbonate out of the bone to buffer the acids. It's also the case that cold environments are themselves uh, compromising to acid-base balance. Cold environments decrease gas exchange across the lungs. And in hypothermia, this becomes a cause of acidosis because you can't exhale carbon dioxide as effectively. Cold environments also slow the excretion of acid by the kidneys. In hypothermia, this becomes extreme enough that the pH of the blood can drop as low as six. And part of the cardiac arrest that can occur in hypothermia is from acidosis. There was a study, I think it was done in Norway, where they looked at a 10-year follow-up of people who were uh, admitted to the hospital for primary hypothermia of, um, uh, that caused cardiac arrest. And the 10-year survival, one of the main predictors was the pH of the blood at the time of admission to the hospital. If the hypothermia had led to a pH of 6.0, they were likely to have died within the 10-year follow-up. And the mean pH of the blood at time of admission in the people who were survived after 10 years was 6.6. So hypothermia itself is a major impairment in acid-base balance. When you're on a ketogenic diet, you have a 20-fold increase in the acid, uh, in the uh, amount of acid in terms of the energy molecules carried in your blood. Normally, the only energy molecule, yes, there's other acids, but the only energy molecule that you carry in your blood that's acidic usually is fatty acids. And if you get into uh, prolonged fasting or a very like therapeutic level ketogenic diet, you're going to 20-fold increase the amount of circulating acids carried by the ketones. And yes, I will definitely say that almost no one um, who self-selects a ketogenic diet develops ketoacidosis. No mistake about that. Um, But in an environment where you have multiple stressors placed on you, including genetic genetic adaptations to the cold uh, or to the harsh environment that prevent bicarbonate buffering, and the fact that the cold environment slows the adaptations to acid-base balance 
It also increases the risk of hypothermia where you can cause acidosis in and of itself. Then I think that being in a perpetual state of ketosis would create an additional liability and that protecting the body from ever having 20-fold increases in metabolic circulating acids is going to limit that degree of risk imposed by the other aspects of the environment. Um, so that's kind of the updated version of my hypothesis. I know, I believe you favor Peter's hypothesis about warming, or you can take whatever position you want. Yeah. So a lot of parts of that. So I think that the notion that dietary, the ketogenic diets could lead to clinical ketoacidosis has not been demonstrated in the literature. And the, the theory that you're suggesting is pretty much based on that possibility, uh, that, that ketones could lead to ketoacidosis and therefore the prevention of ketosis with this CPTA mutation, CPT1A mutation would prevent that. Now, I think that that rests on the premise that people can get ketoacidosis from a ketogenic diet, which I, I said, this has not been demonstrated in the literature. There were four, as you noted, there are thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people who are doing ketogenic diets uh, with levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate that are much higher than mine a lot of the time. And people that do episodes of fasting that last five to 10 days, getting levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate up to five, six, seven, that do not develop clinical ketoacidosis in any way, shape, or form. So there were a number of cases in the literature. There were four they, cases in the, in the literature. Because of acid-base buffering. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I believe that the, the body is going to buffer it. Yeah. There were four cases in the literature that, 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 that you found, and unfortunately, in only two of those was the level of beta-hydroxybutyrate actually measured in the blood. So my feeling is that, and in, in one of those cases, the level of beta-hydroxybutyrate was only 3.7 millimolar. Um, you and I went back and forth a little bit about potential situations in which you could have more acetoacetate relative to beta-hydroxybutyrate. That doesn't seem terribly plausible to me based on the fact that those two keto acids equilibrate um, primarily based on the ratio of NAD to NADH, and you would have to have a largely imbalanced ratio to have a huge amount of acetoacetate. When we see people in the hospital, if ketones are even measured in the blood, it's almost never acetoacetate. None of these measured acetoacetate. Only two of them, like I said, measure beta-hydroxybutyrate, and one of those was 3.3, which is not a high enough beta-hydroxybutyrate I, I, but I, I gave you a paper that showed that the range of acetoacetate to beta-hydroxybutyrate ratios in kids up to age 14, I don't have this data for older people, um, the mean is around one, but the range goes up to 25. So it seems like I don't see any problem with the plausibility that her acetoacetate could have been, you know, great, like her acetoacetate could have been enough to bring that to 10 millimolar. Well, I, I think we'd have to look at that ketogenic physiology. Why would it be so imbalanced in kids? Why, usually it equilibrates to like one to one. Why would it, you know, like... Oh, well, there's almost no studies that show the range of the ratios. Almost every study just, show, just tells the mean of the ratio. Yeah. It would be, it's, it's very unusual. It would be very unusual to have a ketoacidosis with a beta-hydroxybutyrate of 3.3 unless there's something completely... I, I, I had, my, I had my assistant completely scavenge the literature looking for this, and we compiled all the papers on the ratios, and only one of them had the range of ratios. 
And that one is the one that showed that the range was really broad and could have a acetoacetate to beta-hydroxybutyrate ratio of up to 25 in one of those people. And in order for that to happen, you'd have to have a profoundly disordered NAD to NADH ratio to push it in that direction. And it's like, why would that happen? So I think it's, it's very unusual, in my opinion. In the other paper where beta-hydroxybutyrate was measured, that one we really can't even pay attention to because that person has chronic pancreatitis and an alcoholic and chronic alcoholism. So that one is not, in my opinion, the case. Well, the chronic alcoholism is the alcoholic ketoacidosis paper, isn't it? Yeah, there's, there's a, yeah, there's a ketoacidosis paper. Um, I was just one. making the, that was just making the, I was just collecting the papers at a non-diabetic ketoacidosis. Right. So I'll, I'll call it ketoacidosis is one of the models for that. Yeah, different, totally different situation. In that situation, her blood glucose had been as high as 500 in the past. So she had clearly had pancreatic dysfunction. Um, in, in the other case reports that are in the literature, the beta-hydroxybutyrate is not measured. And so we can't really say that this happens. I think there could be metabolic abnormalities in these people, but these are unique, perhaps unique metabolic dysfunction that do not represent a large population of people. So unless, in addition to CPT1A polymorphisms, unless there's a large metabolic dysfunction or a large sort of predisposition to developing ketoacidosis on a ketogenic diet in the Inuit that goes along with CPT1A, or if unless CPT1A also predisposes them to get ketoacidosis on a ketogenic diet, I have a real problem with the notion that a ketogenic diet is really going to put them at risk. Do you find it? Do you find it? Impl- do you find it implausible that during the migration to the Arctic there was some period where hypothermia was common? I, I mean, I mean, it's really cold up there and requires cultural adaptations and genetic adaptations to handle the cold. Yeah, I don't think that they're, I mean, if you look at how low people have to get in terms of hypothermia to affect their acid base status, it's, it's incredibly low. It's, it's in the level of like the blood well, body temperature. You? Well, wait, wait, wait. The body temperature has to get into the 80s Fahrenheit to affect, to affect acid base status. And I definitely do not think that the Inuit are walking around right now with body temperatures in the 80s. Like they're not clinically- Well, I don't think so either, but right. I wouldn't be surprised if a number of, people, number of people at some point in the history fell into a lake or something like that. I mean, it's a freezing cold environment. And so it has to be the case that, hypo, that during a period of genetic adaptations and cultural adaptations that exist today, there has to have been, I mean, they have other signs of adaptation to the cold. So those uh, have to be driven by a period of greater cold exposure than they have now because of whatever forced the selective sweeps to favor that. And it seems very plausible to me that flat-out hypothermia would be a major risk of the Arctic environment. Um, but also, I, I'm not so sure that, that's, that it's fair to say that you have to reach a threshold to affect acid-base balance. I mean, generally, the, the, the mediation is driven by um, temperature, which slows molecular transfers. So everything slows down at cold temperatures. And I think one of the issues here is that, like, I'm not saying the classical ketoacidosis that comes in diabetes would be the feature that you would see. I'm just saying that the combined acidosis from multiple factors, including impairments in being able to handle acid-base stress, could combine to produce acidosis. And of course, it's going to look different in that picture if it's partly mediated by lower bicarbonate uh, from lower bone resorption, partly mediated by colder temperature, partly mediated by um, ketone production, et cetera. Uh, I mean, if you take, like, you can have a mixed acidosis, you know? 
Well, the other thing that we haven't discussed is that I think that the data on ketogenic diets doesn't support the fact that there's any change in blood pH. And there were a number of studies that we went back because and forth of acid base buffering. Well, sure, but like clinically, we don't like it's not observed. There's there's no significant change in pH status in in three or four of those studies that we looked at together, Chris. And so, like, it doesn't really, you know, there there it seems like the body can adapt to this. We certainly don't absorb right. changes by bicarbonate. Yeah, and, by taking bicarbonate out of the bone, by exhaling carbon dioxide in the breath and by peeing out ketones. Yeah, and there may be other mechanisms by which we buffer it, but there, the, clinically we right. don't observe changes in pH. And so I, you know, the idea that CPT1A, the other thing about CPT1A, which Peter has noted in his blog, is that the mutation is not pervasive in the Arctic, that it's concentrated in the coastal areas. So the theory that he advanced was that it may have something to do with omega-3 fatty acid consumption, but in the inland areas, it's, it's less common to have a CPT1A mutation. So it's not like 100% of people. The coastal regions is more common, which suggests that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because that's not, you know, that, that suggests another factor. He also talks, I think it's also interesting, his theory is that... Well, he made the, he made the point that omega-3 from marine fats upregulate CPT1A. Or, or that it allows increased utilization of fatty acids. Right, but the, his his explanation for why it's more common in the coast was more marine fat, for, more omega threes would upregulate CPT one A. So it does make sense that if the if CPT one A is a risk, of course, factors how that would, increase its expression. How would it increase the expression? It's like epigenetic modifier with omega threes. I thought it had something to do with fatty acids moving across the membrane rather well, than. Uh, Omega th- omega-3 fatty acids are burned at a higher rate for beta-oxidation. Um, I'd, I'd have to look up those mechanisms. I'm quite sure that was his rationale, though. I thought he had different rationale. Um, and then he suggested that perhaps with increased free fatty acids, there was more of an uncoupling effect, and it was probably a thermic effect. But I don't know. I, so I, I do want to say one thing about that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a thermic effect of it. I just don't see the rationale for having a... Um, for having a specific impairment in ketone production, highly specific impairment in hepatic beta oxidation um, that causes the risk of um, hypoketotic hypoglycemia, seizures, and infant mortality in order to achieve warming that we already have a sophisticated system for involving the hypothalamus, norepinephrine, free fatty acid, lipolysis, and UCP1. There are so many polymorphisms that could be selected for in terms of brown fat production, in terms of the hypothalamic response to cold, and in terms of UCP1 expression that I just don't see why we wouldn't see the changes aimed at warming targeted all in those pathways. And those, those, there are changes there, but why leverage something that has such a specific effect on ketone production simply to get more warming out of that rather than creating higher leverage in the system of warming as it's designed. I, I don't know why it would go one way and not the other, but I think that the, the idea that we are, they are trying to avoid ketosis for reasons of acidosis. I, I just don't think it, um, I don't think there's enough data to support that with all the things we talked about. Yeah, there's no, okay. No Fair enough. Yeah. Um, do you want to add any final thoughts? I think we can, uh, take our break at least until part three for now. Jesus. <laughs> um, it's, it's been a long time. It was great having you on. 
Uh, I think we're largely in agreement that keto and carnivore can be tools to be used. We're largely in agreement that, that we need more study. I think we fall in a little bit different places in terms of the probability that these things are going to offer you know, complete protection from all the possible negative effects that we talked about. Um, but certainly context is super important and you've done amazing work in lining out how to properly plan a mildly ketogenic uh, carnivore diet. And um, if you're going to do mildly keto carnivore, certainly do it the way that uh, Dr. Saladino has uh, designed it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So uh, thanks for having me on. People can find more of my stuff at my website, which is carnivoremd.com. I mentioned my podcast a bunch. It's Fundamental Health with Paul Saladino, MD. Got a book coming out in February called The Carnivore Code. Interestingly, the subtitle is Unlocking the Secrets to Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet because we didn't have amylase is what I'm going to put back in that, that subtitle. It's going to be on the cover. No amylase. Awesome. And since we'll cross-post this, you can find me at chrismasterjohnphd.com and check out my vitamins and minerals course at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash 101. All right. Thanks, Chris. Take care, Paul. This is great. Thanks. All right, you radical people. So thank you for listening to that one. That was a doozy. With the intro and the outro, this one's going to be close to three hours, which is like long form. But look, nuance doesn't sell in Hollywood. Nuance doesn't get clicks, but nuance is where the battle is fought. This is science. This is us trying our best to make sense of this. And I don't have all the answers. Chris doesn't have all the answers. And we are both just trying to help us advance the paradigm. In my opinion, a ketogenic diet is not harmful for humans in any way, shape, or form. It's part of something we've been doing evolutionarily throughout time. I, am, I still remain unconvinced that we need to cycle carbs in and out. And I have not really seen significant benefits from doing that. But if you feel better doing that, I'm completely open to that. I try not to be dogmatic about a carnivore diet. Like I said in the intro, I think what's most interesting for me about the carnivore diet is the notion that plants can be toxic, that we should think about plants on a toxicity spectrum, and that we should realize that animals are the best place that we are getting our nutrients. And if we do those things, we can be 85% carnivore or 90% carnivore and still lead freaking radical lives. And that's amazing. I don't choose to include any plants in my diet because I've never met a plant since diving into this research that made the cut that I felt like provided unique nutrition for me as a human. But if you guys like to include plants, that's amazing. It's all about just helping us, our families, our children, and be healthy and correcting the untruths that are out there. So we are all trying to do that. We all make mistakes. We're all wrong. I'm sure that not everything I am saying is correct. And I appreciate people like Chris, you know, helping me think about things in context and challenging me to learn as well. So we all keep learning and we're all just going to keep enjoying this gift of life that we have. My book is getting really close to being finished. The editing is going really well. We're going to go to press really soon. Like I said, it's coming out in February, 2020. Go to the for a landing page or to my website, carnivoremd, which has a link to the book and you can pre-order in a link to Indigo River, my publisher from both of those. Thank you so much for that support, you guys. I appreciate you all. I've been playing with some new hashtags. I love the word radical so much. I'm going to come out with some t-shirts that say stay radical soon to spread the message. But I am so stoked about a couple of hashtags. Is it lame to talk about hashtags on here? Anyway, whatever. My hashtag, you'll see them on my Instagram, the radical life. Hashtag me with the radical life, hashtag the radical life and stay radical. You guys know the stay radical one, but hashtag me. I'll repost it. This is our community. We are radical. We are pushing the boundaries and 
We are not accepting mainstream dogma. Got a hunting trip coming up in January in Austin with my buddy Monsel. There's maybe one spot left for that. I posted about it on Instagram a while ago. If you want to come hunting with me, go to choosecander.com front slash carnivore MD. It may be full. There may be one spot. I'm going to be at White Oak in December for White Oak Cella, December 14th and 15th. If you want to come hang out with me in person, we're going to do some fun stuff. We're going to learn about how it is to be on a farm. I'm going to be filming some cool stuff. It'll be awesome. In January, I will also be at the Physicians for Ancestral Health Conference, PAH Conference in Scottsdale, Arizona with my good buddy, Tommy Wood. We will record another podcast. He is one of the most brilliant people I have ever met. And you should come hang out with me at that conference as well. All right. Upcoming podcast guests, so many good ones in the queue, you guys. We got Stan Efforting, we got Allie Miller, we're gonna have Chris Kresser on in January, we've got Bill Von Hippel talking about evolution, we got Anthony Gustin. We have so many good people, you guys. All right, let me know how I can make this better. Please leave me or you on iTunes if you appreciate this podcast. It's how we get bigger and stay radical. I love you all. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.